Ladies and gentlemen, the following podcast contains coarse language, strong thematic themes, talk of history and context, terrible imitations of Hollywood figures, and an unbashed love of Hollywood's golden age. It also contains the ramblings of an unstable dork who has too much time on his hands. Listener discretion is advised. And now, on with the program. Okay, Zach, you're on the air. Nick! Nick! We have a guest, a music lover. Let's play our song. <laughs> Come on, I'm sure it'll be requested. Murray, you know, we can't play songs in time like this. Come on, old man, where's your professional attitude? Murray, we cannot. This is no time to play songs. Please. Yes, sir. Murray, that's Yesteryear, Ballyhoo, review. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the Yesteryear Ballyhoo review. Many great sights await inside the picture palace of the past, and we have plenty of ways to talk about the things inside. So hurry and get your seats. Tonight, the Ballyhoo is whipping up a tale of New York City and the treasured dialogue that comes from the most blunt and honest folks that you're likely to meet in a dingy one-room apartment above an abandoned Chinese restaurant. For in those walls is a tale of heart, warmth, and several renditions of Yes Sir, That's My Baby. That's right, folks. Tonight we will be treated to Broadway by way of the silver screen as we dive into 1965's A Thousand Clowns. So see the show and stay behind for a discussion to delight the earbuds. Nick, in a moment you're going to see a horrible thing. What's that? People going to work. Maladjusted. Shape up. Odd mess. Murray. 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 Neighbors. I'm sure I speak for all of us when I say that something must be done about your garbage cans in the alley here. It is definitely second-rate garbage. Now by next week. I want to see a better class of garbage. And let's snap it up! Mm, yes, sir, that's my baby. Is this your favorite toy, Nick? It's got an electric battery timer in there that makes it go on and off like that. But tell me, Nick, do you like best the fact that the chest of the lady lights up? Well, you've got to admit you don't see boobies like that every day. No, sir, I don't mean maybe. Crazy nut, I was ready to kill you. Don't let me go. I'm just putting my coffee cup down here. Yes, sir, that's my baby now. I gotta know what day it is. I gotta know what's the name of the game and what the rules are without anyone else telling me. You gotta own your own days and name them. Each one of them. Every one of them. Or else the years go right by, and none of them belong to you. Oh, by the way, do you know what you are? Maladjusted. Yes, by the way, 
sorry I can't watch this. You've got to shape up. Shape up! When we meet, the preacher will say... And you know, sometimes if we were in a crowded elevator someplace, he'll turn to me and he'll say, Max, there'll be no more of this self-pity. Now you're 40, it's time you got used to being a midget. Mm, yes, sir, that's my baby. No, sir. Sooner or later, you'll fall in love with yes, a thousand clowns. That's my baby now. Oh, by the way. Yes, by the way. When we will say yes sir that's my baby no sir I don't mean maybe yes sir that's my baby no now that you've seen the show we will get to the talk of the day yes in 1965 the Broadway smash unfurled itself in film form before a wide audience that would reveal the antics and life lessons felt by Murray and Nick, or is it the Phantom, or Chevrolet? Whatever the kid's name is, we are still the recipients of an adaptation that would prove to be innovative on accident, for the film lifted itself off the stage and into the very streets of New York out of desperation rather than intent, resulting in an unexpected pre-New Wave picture. Just how is A Thousand Clowns influential on the world of cinema today? Well, it's a question that needs two to answer. On the Ballyhoo to help accomplish this is a musician and podcaster whose devotion to sharing others' passions can be heard on his wonderful podcast, Yo, That's My John, and today he will give us his take on what it's like to live in a New York City filled with Peter Laurie impressions and Chuckles the Clown. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the show, Nate Runkle. My man, thank you so much for having me. <laughs> welcome, Nate. So, um, uh, there's origin stories of uh, of a sort with us. So we knew each other through Kevin Smith fandom, um, and uh, we let's just let's just take it back real quick. Yeah, I knew you when you were a youngin, my friend. Y- yes, a you youngin, <laughs> a you, young whippersnapper, as it were. <laughs> You were you were slightly older than than uh, Nick, I believe, right? Like, I, what I, were you? Fifteen, I think. Or I think so. Yeah, fifteen years yeah. old. Yeah, and then, but we kept in touch over the years. Um, and now you have a podcast too, which I think because I was listening to this week's new episode that just came out, um, and you were talking about how you got it started in the middle of the pandemic. So you you did start. We think I think we pretty much started our shows around the same time. Um, and, and that's kind of incredible how the pandemic kind of pushed us to do the things that we wouldn't have done otherwise. Um, for the people out there who haven't listened yet to Yo, That's My John, which, first of all, shame the fuck on you. Um, <laughs> um, can you give uh, the, uh, the Ballyhoo listeners a little bit of a, an idea of what the show is and how it came to be? Certainly. So um, it essentially started out, yo, that's my joint, started out as just this little thing where I was uh, I was at home, it was the pandemic, and I was doing um, live streams. So I was like playing guitar for people Friday nights and stuff like that, um, who could yeah. no longer go outside, you know, and, and then I started watching like all of my musician friends doing the same thing. And I'm like, wait a minute, if you guys know how to do this, 
then I bet you guys know how to Zoom. And then once everybody knew how to Zoom, I was like, let's just have conversations. Let's just do this. So, so you know, that's my John started out with. I just wanted to talk to my musician friends and kind of like interview them, get their music out there and stuff like that. And that's how season one started. But then, of course, it wasn't enough for me. I got the taste. I tasted blood and I wanted more. So <laughs> then I started then I started reaching out to people. Right. And um, I started like uh, I started emailing, you know, um, people who had uh, recording contracts and stuff like that and uh, disc jockeys and actors and actresses. And all of a sudden I realized, hey, everybody is in lockdown. <laughs> So everybody can come talk to me now. Like everybody's not. So so like for a period of time, like I, the people who were saying yes, like completely dumbfounded me because and then I realized, oh, no, they just have nothing to do. But so the show is essentially just me talking to people about their careers and then kind of ending everything. I just want to know what people like. And that's really I just wanted something positive. I wanted to hear like what what people were into and 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 you know our tagline to the show is displace the guilt embrace the pleasure because i don't believe in guilty pleasures i just want you to tell me what you like and just don't apologize for it just tell me if you like it you like it admit it i at last a place where i cannot apologize for liking jack benny you hear that ryan frost suck it um <laughs> exactly um, and 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 no lie like i want you to come on the show and i want to talk to you about about that because oh. like watching everything you and, and this is where i'm just going to completely shower you in praise my friend but like, no no <laughs> shutting off the camera <laughs> but but watching you grow um, from that 15-year-old Bordy who just had so many precocious questions into, like, just a creator in his own right. And, and it's been inspiring. And, and I am so proud to uh, not just be able to follow your career, but also to know you and be able to continue uh, to talk to you and stuff like that. So. The feeling is mutual, my friend, because like you, you've always been, you've always been deep into sharing your music, and I've loved watching it blossom into this because we found. Uh, I think it's fair to say we found a benefit out of podcasting to share different elements of our creativity that aren't just relegated to the show and its format that we inhabit. I, I would re I would say that, you know, the big thing that Ballyhoo was able to uh, provide was an open space to talk about a, a Jack Benny's film career because there was no other space to do that, really. Um, and for, for you, it's not just and it's not just the music, too. It's also displaying an exuberant personality. Like, I, I, I mean this in the best possible way because I could understand how this would come off as a as a dig. You sound like the best version of a Zoom morning radio show host at the top of your show. It's precise. It's just clean cut. It gets to the it it gets exactly to the point of what the show's going to be, but you do it in a way that's inviting. It's like well, we're being welcomed into Nate's house. And we're going to just hang out at Nate's house for an afternoon, which is like similar to like how I'm over Zoom with you right now and I see your beautiful studio set up. It literally feels like we are engaged in that. Um and additionally, like what one of the things I love about your show is 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 when you are listing down which one is their John, where you have people talking about what they prefer one or the other, and some of the answers surprised me that it would match up with my own taste. But like I, I'm curious for you, um, would you say that between what would be your John here in regards to Ballyhoo? Would it be Golden Age Hollywood 
or new wave cinema. So that's that's the that's the that's the bite right there. Is I um, was and still remain an enormous Francois Truffaut fan. Um, and and um, and and by proxy, Godard and and the mm-hmm. new wave. So um, I am I am a student of the new wave. Um, I took new wave classes in in film uh, when I was in college. Um, as a matter of fact, I took French just so I could take the French new wave class because I didn't speak French, so, and, they oh. wouldn't, and and it was in the French department. So I actually had to take French, learn French to be able to take the new wave classes. Um, that so is the op- that is the opposite of our co-host Ryan on Real Nerds because he took French as one thing, but he cannot stand French films. Wow, <laughs> so yeah, it's, it, and it's not it's not a dig against him. Everybody can like what they want to like. It's totally cool. But I I'm amazed that you would want to learn that just so that you could attend a class in order to dissect Godard, Truffaut. Um, I'm sure Jacques Tati has popped up yes. on your radar more than once. We're doing him as a series right now. And it's it, it's it would seem kind of cruel if they put Tati in there because it's like, well, you don't technically have to know French. You know how to you have to be able to see and that's it. Right. Um, but um, so so then you're you're a little bit more new wave then than necessarily Golden Age Hollywood. But you chose a film that's at the crux. It feels of, like a bridge, doesn't it? Like it feels it, like like the you could you, it was like the writing on the wall film, you yeah. know, like um and you know we'll, we'll we'll talk a bit about it, but like the the um, the outdoor reshoot um, footage mm-hmm. changes the tone of that film completely changes the tone of that film. Can you could you would you, uh, follow me on this for a second because I think it's this is this will go back to my days as a theater kid for what what it was worth in high school because I did like for three out of the four years. Um, they showed us the Odd Couple in high school theater. And that's how I got exposed to not to Neil Simon, but to the odd couple. Cause sure. I had already known about Neil Simon through the sunshine boys, but the odd couple is filmed very much in this sort of stage bound aesthetic. And it comes after this movie. Like it's almost as if the, the, the odd couple is filmed in such a way that it's adhering to recreating the stage aesthetic. It has stuff outside, but it's, it's locking itself pretty much down. But a few years prior, you have A Thousand Clowns here, which is decidedly, whether through desire or not, lifting itself out of the stage and into the real world in a way that I'm just, I was floored by this film. Because I, I, out of all the things that have been brought to this show, this one was the biggest surprise. The closest that, I've come to is actually another film that I'm going to be recording on later this week, which is Kurosawa's High and Low, because I was not, I'm not Kurosawa, like learned like other people around me, so I didn't realize that Kurosawa made a Hitchcock movie, right? Yeah, but that, but that news to me. But this one, A Thousand Clowns, is very much a a mixture of things that I love, which is watching a camera move and 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 give us the vibe of its setting. But I also love stage-bound dialogue, which <clears throat> I guess it makes sense that we're both fans of Kevin Smith, and now I'm a fan of this film because we latched on to Kevin's dialogue. I think, uh, like amongst all the other things going on, whether it's nerd references or weed humor, there is a adherence to very strong dialogue, which this play slash film is filled with. 
Um, and so I guess I've got to ask before we dive into production, how did you discover this film? Was this a childhood thing or was this a later in life thing? This was absolutely later in life. This was probably, um, probably around the time we were posting on the board or whatnot, maybe shortly after. Um, but it was a, uh, it was a Turner classic movies, uh, watch, you know, um, uh, as you know, and, um, I will now explain to the audience, I am an enormous fan of a little film called dream, a little dream. And I would have been mm-hmm. remiss had I not said the title of that movie at all, but dream, a little dream stars, Jason Robards. Uh, uh yeah. and, and I am, uh, an enormous Robards fan. Like, I just think he's like, he is one of the coolest, like most measured, cool, um, people ever. And, um, so, you know, this came up as, um, you know, I was, you know, going through the guide or whatnot and it came up and I was like, Oh, Robart's film from sixties. I'll check it out. Um, so I just put it on and I watched it from the beginning to the end and it hit me on like multiple levels because like you said, the dialogue is so razor sharp and, um, Mm -hmm. and, and there are, there are moments and, uh, I'm, I'm telling on myself here, but there are moments where, uh, where I'm recording, uh, the podcast and I'm doing intros and stuff like that, where I will, I will slide into a slight Barry Gordon cadence, um, into things (laughs) that I'm saying, like it, 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 I mean, like that character of Nick, um, I was ju- I was just in awe of like and it's weird because I normally don't like um kid actors and I think part of it um also going to dream little dream is like I just have I have an issue with child actors um just based off of what happened to the Corys and what happened to so many people in the industry who just weren't taken care of now of course Barry Gordon you know uh was taken care of um and you know went on to uh be one of the longest tenured if not the longest tenured um SAG president. So like, you know, he had a, a, a great long career. Um, but that character spoke to me on a level that like, I, I was just like, there's this character is one of the best characters I've ever, I've ever seen in a movie. Um, and then, you know, s- same goes for, for Robards, um, who is just, you know, slinging that dialogue, like, mm-hmm. like, like a whip man like it's 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 so impressive in some of the some of the takes so that was like my my entry point and then um you know i was of a certain age and i um as some people may say didn't grow up like everybody else did so like i related to the character of murray so much because i you know i always felt like kind of an outlier you know not as not as much uh, finger to the world or quit jobs and stuff like that. Not as, not as reckless, but, um, but you know, there was, there was something there that I, that I connected to. And then the third, as we said, like the, the, the pseudo kind of new wave structure, um, was the third piece that like those three things kind of forming together. I was just like, I was in awe that I never heard anything. Like I had heard of the stage play, but I had never heard anything about the film up until that point. So like, I just sat there and it was done and I immediately had to like find it replaying on the guide to record it on VHS at the time so that I could have a copy to just completely dig into. Yeah, I, I, I so you you bringing up the fact that you had not heard the film up into a certain point. That shocked me that I didn't know about this because this is a best picture nominee. Right. And like and I'm not like I mean, I'm not like beholden to the Oscars list because obviously I could f- fight the Academy on several choices, but this is one where I'm like how did I not know about this? Like I didn't even know about this play 
until this weekend oh, yeah. <laughs> or the or the in our prep for this when you sent me all the info on it and so i was like kind of flabbergasted the other thing was i'm a huge psycho fan i didn't bother to look that much into martin balsam as a yeah. in his career apart from maybe breakfast at tiffany's he won an oscar off of this movie <laughs> That's that blew my mind, and and you know I've been a fan of this film for some time now, and just doing the research to have this conversation, I didn't even know that until maybe last week or something like that. Like I, I just I just imagine Martin Balsam sinking into the swamp in Psycho, and he's just got an Oscar in his hands yeah. <laughs> because that's the only image that I have of Marty Balsam is Arbogast being pushed down the stairs, and so and to have him along with the mix, and we've got Barbara Harris in her first like real starring role in a film um like let's circle over back to barry gordon for a second because i it's so weird because you were we we talked about child actors just a minute ago Mm -hmm. like you were talking about like you're not like against them there is this perception that like a kid actor is going to be a 50 50 proposition they're either going to work or they're not going to work and barry gordon's brilliance i think stems from uh, something that he said that makes the most sense. Um, there was an interview that is on the Kino Lorber Blu-ray where he explained that the role, which he first inhabited on Broadway and then did on film, uh, came a little more naturally to him because while he was a normal kid to a certain extent with his own interactions with people his age, he was a little bit more well-read. Um, he literally listed as one of the f- books he was reading at the time profiles encouraged by john oh f God. kennedy which is like yeah when you hear that you're just like i'm sorry like i was i was maybe reading uh, like some kind of showbiz biography like that was easier to read like george burns like a george burns all my best friends right. like memoir book not profiles encouraged which i would assume is one of the most strongly literate pieces in American in American history. So a kid of 11 reading that shit is bizarre. But Gordon also has a storied history. And it's funny because he technically doesn't begin his career here. He started off in television. And one of the roles that he had that brought him to the attention of Herb Gardner was an appearance on Alfred Hitchcock presents um, where uh, I it's the contest for Aaron gold from 1960. So he not only had that, but way to bring a Jack Benny connection out of nowhere because he is in not one, not two, but three Jack Benny episodes from 1961. And this isn't the first time that Jack casted somebody that would go on to even greater acclaim because he had a young Harry Shearer on as far back as the radio era. Um, So, and one of the things that he does is play Jack as a child and an agent bartering for a young child actor's contract in Jack casting for this television special. Um, So he displays that intelligence and I've seen that episode more times than I can count. So he's not just some precocious child actor he's it's like julia butterfield today from once upon a time in hollywood yeah um where um i I think i got the name right or her name right sounded um yeah but um but that that learned intelligence coming out of her delivery and her timing that's similar to what we have with barry gordon um and 
the production of this film I find fascinating because it almost seems to start normally and then goes off the rails. Right. Like, there's no real reason to suggest that this wouldn't work. This was a hit on Broadway. Um, Robards and Gordon had originated these roles along with Gene Sachs. So they got virtually everybody back in, which seems logical. Um, And yet there was a slight bit on Variety that blew my mind, which was apparently they were trying for Steve McQueen for that role. And I don't I don't get that at all. So thank God that didn't happen. Um, But the fun part of this is that Robards is now he's solidly in demand. And has he always just looked old? Because that's the impression that I get. Yes. He's just never, it's like, um, it's like Ian McKellen. I've never seen Ian McKellen in his twenties and I don't want to see a photograph of that ever in my life ever would ruin the illusion for me. Um, Patrick Stewart's different. He was on Star Trek next generation. He looked a little bit more sprightly. Um, so Robards at the time that they were going to make the film, um, he had exited a thousand clowns to take on the role of George S. Kaufman in a, show called Act One, which was based off of the memoirs of Moss Hart. So he was continuing his run on stage, but he signs to um, the, the role of that he originated on Broadway on May 14th, 1964, per Variety. It says Jason Robards Jr. has been signed to repeat his Broadway starring role in A Thousand Clowns with Barbara Harris and Marty Balsam. Uh, with the comedies beginning to shoot on Monday in New York. Fred Coe produces and directs the United Artists release. Fred Coe originated it on Broadway. And um, Fred Coe is a name that I wish I knew more about. Um, He was heavy in early television. He was an innovator in early dramatic, dramatic television, specifically these Playhouse 90s, uh, Philco Television Playhouse. Um, He was among the people that produced the original Marty before the film that became the Oscar winner with Ernest Borgnine. Um, So at this time when he's doing this, he's just continuing a trend of adapting things that he has already worked on. And in fact, it seems that United Artists had enough banking on him that they were giving him producer carte blanche on other Broadway adaptations as well. I didn't know if it was necessarily too direct, but it was clear that they liked him. And because this film's in New York, it actually comes at a time that I was heretofore unaware of where there was a dearth of desire to film in New York. And the only thing that I think can explain that is the amount of time and energy it would take to do that versus filming on the studio lot. But the studio lot's declining. Now, it makes sense to shoot in New York if you can afford it. Back then, you have IATSE crews and other people clamoring, get work into the city. Now you see a lot of states inbound in the country trying to get people to film in their state. Colorado has that all the time. Even we had uh, the Hateful Eight film out here in Telluride. Okay. And we still can't and we still don't get any any more than any other state apart from New Mexico and Georgia because those are major production hubs now. But imagining that New York had a trouble getting people to come to their city to film is baffling to me. I don't understand that at all. Um and additionally, 
the the film as it was getting developed, people were starting to leave the roles, and so other people would start to assume it. This is a note for the LA production. Uh, is uh, as they were getting people out for the film, they had other people coming in. There was an actual cartoon host series uh, series host that signed on to play the role of Chuckles in an LA adaptation of the piece. Uh, Tom Hatton, who was an MC for the Popeye cartoons that would show on KTLA. Uh, he signed on to play Chuckles at the Players Ring show that opened on June 28th. So the, it, it's it's interesting how they found people that connected to the role somehow in order to get them uh, to bring some authenticity to it. And we'll yeah. talk about Herman because I know you love Barry Gordon and I love Barry Gordon too, but I fucking love Gene Sachs in this movie. I am fucking adoring He's so good. him. He's so the good. break. Oh, we'll get to the breakdown. We'll get to the breakdown. Um, now, um, uh, Co. Um, as said before, he had already been uh, in a busy uh, state. Um, he was literally set to produce a further Broadway adaptation of this property as condemned by Tennessee Williams within the month of October of the year that this film happens. Now, in researching production information on this, was very difficult because the f- the play was still running at the time of production, and there's not a lot about things happening during production. Like, there's no real stories. They just filmed. Yeah. Um, it seems like production went about as smooth as it possibly could. Um, in fact, like, they were filming amid the Lincoln Center being constructed. And I found this fun. And uh, have you seen the new West Side Story by Steven Spielberg? So I haven't seen it yet, but I, I believe I know exactly what you're about to say. He looked at this film as reference for the uh, the building of the Lincoln Center to match the quality for the film. And I've seen West Side Story, the Spielberg's West Side Story, and it's absolutely on point because there are moments in this film that we were watching today that I was like, I feel like I'm in Spielberg's West Side Story right very now. Very much, very much. Yeah. And you know, it was, it was, it was, it was an exciting um, tidbit to read too because I was just like, and and again, I, maybe this is just my uh, me being naive, but like I'm like, oh, Sp- Spielberg knows this movie. Like, I'm, I'm, of course he does. But you know what I mean? Like, it was. A, <laughs> No, well, I mean, when he's not busy shooting music videos on an iPhone, which is uh, which was the best news I ever received today. <laughs> it's a picture of him. I think I think he's the DP, but it's a picture of Kate Capshaw pulling him on a wheelie chair, and I was just like, I have been vindicated because I've done this before. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, but One of now, us. yes, oh yes, cue the freaks <laughs> yes. google gobble google gobble um now um there was uh filming done at the meyerberg studios in long island um and fun- funnily enough um i i i i don't know why this lists it's listed here because i don't think he actually did this but the variety article claims that another uh, they, they they mix up their sentences, but they talk about among the things that are being filmed uh, in New York, one of them is Santa Claus Conquers the Martians. Yes. Uh, which was made at the Jailer Productions at Long Island, uh, also at Lo- Long Island Studios. Um, but the, the way the sentence is formed, it feels like they're trying to insinuate that 
Fred Coe did this or United Artists did this. So I'm just like, I you need to clarify for me, please. <laughs> um, but this was all uh, based around New York, uh, New York filming. Like the the whole key is we want to we want you to film in New York. Um, now, this is where the production takes its turn um, because it actually is important to talk about the end of production um, and subsequently the release before talking about the film because of what it became. So in order to start off with this, I want to go to IMDb because we all know it's never lied to us <laughs> once in our lives, ever, ever. It taught me everything I know need to know about 1994's The Shadow. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, the, uh, the entry reads, per William Daniels' memoir, several months after production on the film concluded, he attended a private screening of an initial cut of the film, which Barry Gordon in that interview said lasted two hours and 45 minutes, um, which I'm like, I want that direct. Where cut. is that Girl. cut? Yeah, man. Yeah. The one that's boring and has no cinema verite. <laughs> um, it's like, it, it, I, I, I don't want to see it because it would ruin this film for me. But at the same time, it's like the curiosity thing. Like, I got to know what you what what made you realize, oh, shit. Exactly. Um, or seeing the audience cards. The audience cards would actually be a really good indicator, too. Um, but this version contained no film location filming, no marching band music score. Um, and the role of Leo Herman was played by Paul Richards and not Gene Sachs. Um, this early cut proved to be such a disappointment to the filmmakers that Herb Gardner decided to relinquish his screenwriting fee in exchange for permission from the producers to rewrite several scenes, rehire Sachs to substitute Richards' performance, shoot a number of exterior scenes on location, and extensively re-edit the film into its final version. Um, now... In this entry, it says, was uh, Gene Sachs was originally unavailable for filming. Now, that's a broad statement that could claim like, oh, he was busy on another project, this, this, and this. Well, um, it actually, they actually have him signing on to this role as early on as 63. And in fact, or 64, sorry, May 27, 1964, Variety reports that he has signed on. Then he leaves. Um, and... I found from June 9th, 1965, an article titled Reshoot Clowns Scenes with Sex. Nate, would you mind if I read the entire article? I would appreciate it. Yeah, don't worry. It's not, it's, it's not the length of the Pentagon Papers. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so this is coming off the wire from New York, June 8th. Gene Sachs has replaced Paul Richards in the key role of the kooky TV star in the film version of A Thousand Clowns almost a year after production of the film was completed. Sachs, who originated the role on Broadway, had been signed to repeat his on-screen character, but came down with hepatitis 10 days before filming began and <laughs> shooting in the spring of 1964. In his stead, producer-director Fred Coe signed Richards, who had done the role in The National Company. Mm. So there's a difference between unavailable and hepatitis. <laughs> hepatitis. Wow. <laughs> I'm not a scientist. I'm not a doctor, Jim. But I know that <laughs> there is a difference between, oh, I'm just unavailable. I've got too many projects, too. I'm burning. <laughs> that's <laughs> so, right. Yeah. That's that's that, incredible. Like that, um, that makes so much more sense. But it's also really great um, just how open variety was about it as well. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Now, and, and, and this is where my brain had to start sussing out okay, what, what is true and not true? Because you read press of the era, 
especially further back. If you hear the phrase cold laryngitis, it's code for something else more often than not. And in fact, we we ran into that with The Horn Blows at Midnight with Jack Benny because he he goes down with a case of laryngitis, turns out to be the flu. Then you learn that there's a flu epidemic in LA between 1943 and 1944. So um, there there's a whole evolution of just like, all right, we can't contain this anymore right. because the studios can't pay us enough to not talk about a, um, an epidemic that's taking down 9% of your staff. So this one though, I'm shocked how honest it is. I wonder if it's because Variety stopped giving a fuck. <laughs> right. Because... Maybe the maybe the well had dried up for hush money or Eddie Mannix was no longer around to kick doors open and whatnot and be like, now stop it. Um, so the, the article does continue, though, to describe the reshoot stuff. Coe's reluctance, Coe's uh, reluctant to talk about the three days of reshooting with Sachs done about six weeks ago for fear of reflecting upon Richard's talent and ability. It was just a question of the right actor for the right part, he said. And when Sachs recovered, it was decided the film would be just that much better with him. In the role, Richard's, he said, has done work with other roles that Sachs could never do. Very little money was said to be involved in the reshoots. Decision said Co. was United Artists, which will release the Jason Robard star, had not seen cut footage involved Richards, but because they were so high on what they did see, agreed to the extra expenditure to get Sachs back into the picture. Film which completed original shooting last July is due for release later this year. So that's another very different story than what ends up being revealed. So you can also see in the same point, the press is kind of either they're not aware which is highly possible, or they are tamping down the story and tamping down the true effect, which was this test screening that they had of this two-hour and 45-minute cut bombed, yep. bombed heavily. They, Gordon described it in the interview as they made a play. And I think it's important to talk about this before we dive into the plot. What is your, as a viewer of film, what is your impression of adaptations from Broadway ver and how they are seen cinematically because the debate rages on in a, in a, and it's a case by case basis of what is cinematic and what is not. So like, how do you feel about the adaptations that you generally see um, and how they work on a cinematic level? So it, you know, and this kind of goes back um, to uh, co working on, on playhouse 90 and whatnot, like to me, um, play adaptations worked very well on television. Um, mm -hmm. In film, like it, I mean, it was really like hit or miss. Like, and and I can't, I like I can't pinpoint any in my head that I'm thinking about right now. But like, you know, if you had somebody with a voice, or more importantly, somebody with with a, a, the vision to be able to kind of break that kind of you know play or a stage set structure or you know and and which is why it worked so well for television because it's the same kind of thing but so when when you could break you know that plane then it would be a little more it would be a you know a little better um you know but but as i said you know, Co being, you know, somebody who did all of those Playhouse 90s and even watching, you know, what's in this film, you know, that takes place in the specifically in the apartment 
um, you can see what that movie probably was. Um, mm-hmm. You know, which is you know essentially the the same structure as the play, which is I think primarily takes place in the apartment. Um, I think there's um, an act that takes place in in um, the office uh, when he's uh, talking to his brother. Um, but but so you know you can see how before the reshoots and before they started kind of doing a lot of the exteriors and kind of you know some of the the new wave touches that we were talking about you can see what that film would have been like and you can yeah. very easily see how i i wouldn't even say boring because i still think the dialogue for me personally would have carried it to be something special um but it but not to the level of where it is now right um i the impression that I got from these moments in the apartment remind me of uh, early com- early film sound comedy. It reminds me, like, I mean, I'll use the, the best um, gateway example for this is our early Marx Brothers films before they go to Hollywood. They made two films in Astoria Studios in New York, and they were both adaptations of Broadway shows that they were either currently engaged in or about to be engaged in. Um, so coconuts and animal crackers, because they're early sound films, they are locked to a big extent. That doesn't mean they're immobile. That doesn't mean they're uncinematic. There's plenty of moments where they are or uh, slightly indicate where the energy could be if they get it off the camera. But like you are dealing with the desire to show the whole the the, the mass audience what it is like to be at a Broadway show. And I think from the moment film came around to this very day, there's an undeniable argument that you are almost bound to at least hit this bare minimum of representing the stage show and what it looks like because people can't always afford to go to Broadway to right. buy tickets. Um, the A good example of this where I oddly enough think it's done correctly is the producer's remake from 2005. It's not a cinematic film. Susan Stroman is not a cinematic director per se. She's a Broadway director. That film looks like the best approximation you will get of paying the hundred dollars. It would have been at the time to go watch the producers over at the King, the the St. James theater that, that feeling is very present. This film is an odd mixture of two styles clashing. And yet it works because of the way they transition. And it, this is one of the few times where this is not a detriment. The ADR is very noticeable in this film. Yes. But it it's essential to the movie. You can watch the effect of the ADR and how it transitions from scenes and and in a sense you're gonna watch the evolutionary point that we talk about on this show a lot which is the 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 crux between golden age hollywood or hollywood as it was and hollywood and what it was going to become within three to four years um and it's it's jarring in a lot of places like the opening of this film the, the opening shot we'll just jump right into it that opening shot of Murray outside about to yell and you have the balloon flying through the air. And it's it's just, this isn't 
this isn't a, a Rossellini movie. This isn't a guitar movie. This is a movie being made by a television director out of New York. Right. And it's one of the most, I would argue this is more beautiful than the floating bag in American Beauty. <laughs> Um, because that's supposed to represent a lot. I feel like this represents way more and, and I can't even define what it represents, but it does feel, I feel a sense of all of their fates kind of just kind of up in the air. Everybody's fate is kind of floating around right now. Um, everybody's sort of in a weird, they're not, they're either going to, they're, they're either going to fall hard on the ground or they're going to rise above. Um, but right now they're in a middle plane. And Murray Burns is at the most cantankerous middle plane that has ever existed on screen ever. He is Walter Matthau if Walter Matthau was somehow just a teeny bit more likable. <laughs> right, right. Because I don't I don't get that. I don't know how you feel. Maybe like do, do you get the feeling that Walter Matthau just never like he never it never feels like I could approach him. Jason Robards, I feel like I could approach him. Yeah, it's it's that it's that sense of like um, uh, I, I I actually don't know if he, if he'll if he'll hear this or not, but uh, one of my best friends, Andrew, his father um, is a very sarcastic person. I mean, like incredibly sarcastic to the point where it took me a very long time to understand that he wasn't serious. But in it, there's a little bit of seriousness in it, okay? It's, it's like, it's a beautiful dance of passive aggressiveness, okay? And, um, and that's what I feel about Murray, is he, he plays that dance very well where, you're, where I want him to like me, but mm-hmm. also, I also do not want to be on the receiving end of, of his ire, you know? It's kind of like being friends with Groucho Marx or like, or being a fan of Groucho Marx. I would love to watch Groucho do anything. I would be afraid to walk up and talk to Groucho. Right. Like, cause like you, you hear him, like he, he, it's not that he was the character in real life, but he could, he could ream you if he wanted to. And like, it's almost just like, nah, it's better to just keep my distance. Sometimes the phrase, never meet your heroes is correct. Right. Um, I don't feel that it's a full on foolproof statement, but there are times when it proves accurate. It's a case by case human basis. Murray is the kind of person where I feel like I could work a nine to five job with him, but I would not want to meet him outside of those hours whatsoever. (laughs) Yeah. I definitely can see that. Like I would have no problem interacting with him on the chuckles, the clown set. But outside of that, he is not welcome in my apartment. He is not welcome to dinner with me or to the Alamo with me. He's not welcome whatsoever. Um, now, the, the from there, we are treated to the first real interactions between Nick and Murray. Um, and uh, Nick, played by Barry Gordon, who has a, a bunch of names that we'll talk about in a second. But this is a middle-aged child (laughs) that's right off the bat. This is not, this isn't precocious child. This is, we stuck a 40 year old inside Barry Gordon. (laughs) 100%. It's, it's, I, I think it's a little jarring even to this day. It's, it's, it had to be jarring for a mass audience watching somebody be that direct. Like I, I think the majority of films that we've covered on this show that have child actors, they're not bringing anything 
massive to the table in terms of intellect. They're either snotty brats or they're adorable. Um, or like in the case of Shadow of a Doubt, which we talked about for Hitchcock, they're very intelligent, but they also carry a naivete about them. Right. This is a str- This is a cynical. This is a cynical eleven-year-old. Like this is this. This is just nuts. How he is able to communicate with Murray, and he's trying to get him to talk to him sincerely. And we kick off with this great line, which is, "In a few minutes, you're going to see a horrible sight." <laughs> what is it? People going to work. <laughs> That's right. And it and then it kicks off with this big band music, this John Philip Sousa like blasting and blaring, and it goes throughout the entire movie. Um, it kind of reminds me this. I mean, I think Kevin's gonna Kevin Smith's gonna come up a lot in this discussion because I got shades immediately of the opening of Clerks, the cold open where Dante's getting called into work, and then we kick into that Clerks uh, song that is self titled from the soundtrack. Yeah. Um, this is the same kind of thrust and kick to the groin that you're getting. And you're getting this March of the ants, essentially like everybody's running to and fro to work. And this is an example of this innovative cinema verite. We're in the streets. We're watching people about their daily lives. This is unfiltered. This is not rehearsed. Um, and it's weird because I think we try to, intentionally recreate this kind of spontaneity on film today. Like we don't, I, 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 you obviously you'll see it in an independent film out of necessity, but you'll see people on a big scale really trying to recreate this kind of organized chaos. And it never feels as raw as it does here. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that it's in black and white and the simple fact that, there is imperfection in the camera movement. Yeah. And this, and the sound design. I mean, the way that like, there are just like essentially slap edits on the audio. And then there's like no kind of, you know, ambient sound. There's no just natural background sound to a lot of the shots. And then all of a sudden you'll hear the sound of like a car honking or, 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 you know, which plays like a horn in the March almost. Yeah. And there's, there's something deceptive about the film. And it's hard with older films because I, I I watched this on a Blu-ray uh, from the Blu-ray on an HDTV, like about as a 4K as best as you can get. And I saw shots in this film that looked like they were process shots, but then they would walk from the foreground into the background directly. And I don't know if that, I wish I would know whether through a commentary or like some kind of director's notes, if this was, if this was out of necessity because of filming on location, the thought was get everything in focus. Don't have anything mess up because these are literally the shots that are going to make the movie in a certain respect. And furthermore, I wish we had a breakdown of which shots are absolutely from the original cut versus just, Cinema Verite, because it, it seems like it would be obvious. But then there are shots of Barry Gordon specifically, who I couldn't confirm this on IMDb or even through an interview, but there's apparently a double working That's, with. Yes, yeah, so I forget the guy. I think his name is actually Barry as well, um, but I forget his last name um, that is supposedly in the uh, shots where they're walking with the kite. Yeah, it's. um, uh, God, I had this. I had to, oh, Barry Pearl, Barry Pearl from Greece. 
Um, so like distant shots of them walking around is Barry Pearl apparently, but I still wish we had that list because it seems like those are the, there's an easy way to indicate some of them, which might be ADR, but that also could be sound conditions on location that don't allow for the in-camera audio or the not in-camera audio, but on-set audio. Right. Um, and not everything is fully sunk up. Um, but it doesn't remove the sheen of the moment. I think the dialogue from Herb Gardner is so captivating that you kind of you kind of forgive it. Yeah. Um, and I, whereas whereas if you if you aren't telling a compelling story, that stuff is going to stick out right away, right away. Um, and in this, we learn that <laughs> Barry is uh, uh, being monitored essentially by social services. <laughs> Um, and a lot of it gets cattle, uh, kicked off when, cause he goes to the, sm- the school for big brains yeah. <laughs> as, uh, as they refer to it. Um, and, uh, he wrote an article about the benefits of unemployment checks <laughs> or unemployment insurance. Uh, and it's, it's just, again, I can't say it enough. It's jarring to hear this coming out of a, a child's mouth. Um, but you are watching, a full grown adult acting like a child and a child acting like an adult. So the reversal is wonderful. And I love how Barry's thought to distract him is I'm going to take you on the most mundane thing you've done 500 times before, which is the top of the statue of Liberty. Right. And it, it's, it seems like it's this departure from other films that would have done this in this era where clearly, uh, Nick is an orphan, um, or a, deserted child right and the tendency is for a disconnect or a detachment before you warmly embrace the uncle we're seeing like the five years later version of that where they've settled into a routine that sounds like two people in their middle age bickering over over a game of chess in the park and the the beauty of it is that because they've been in this routine for so long nick knows his ticks. And at many times is able to outsmart Murray. Um, but then he also knows how to treat him with kid gloves. Right. Uh, the the big part of it being after they talk about that they, they read the want ads together. He reads the want ads to him. And it's you you watch the intercutting between that and the montages of going through the city, the blare of this music. And it, you are brought to this standstill outside of what is essentially like a jungle gym. And you have him telling him, I loved going to the Statue of Liberty. And then they engage in this fake spy game. And it just, none of it ever feels contrived. Right. Like, I don't know much about Jason Robards, but I hope to God he was a blast to work with for a child actor. Because, damn it, if that wouldn't have been a fun person to hang around with on a set at age 10 or 11. Especially, like especially because they have the relationship from doing the, the stage show together. Like, and mm-hmm. I think that's part of it that like they've, they've by this point spent so much time working together and, and playing that back and forth with each other that like that dance is, is beautiful. And one of the things that reminds me of, you know, it's a very, dis- it's, one of the other things that stands out to me about this film is just that there are a lot of things that I feel like I wouldn't expect to show up theme wise in a film mm-hmm. from uh, from the from the early to mid sixties, and you know you touched upon uh, that Nick is uh, d- his mother has left. Okay, mm-hmm. so like 
I feel like the the Hollywood move would have been she died and, and I was the only choice. But instead, it's that she left. And she didn't just leave. She left and then she came back and then left again. Like, oh, oh, my God. That line about the cigarette. She went out for a pack of cigarettes and then she came back for the cigarettes. Yeah. Oh, or I may be mixing up the line, but it's just like it was like I reminded him of both uh, of both the child and the cigarettes. Yeah. Um, because Murray has basically been left to take care of the child, uh, and to an ex- and to an extent, uh, his brother um, uh, Arnold, because they're they're oddly enough more responsible than this mother, and Murray is played off to be one of the most irresponsible people on this planet. Um, and yet, when you hear that story, when social services finally comes, your mind is kind of twisted in a way that normal convention wouldn't allow for. We still fall into the general trappings that these stories usually have, which is, you know, super slacker. Um, you don't really sympathize with him. And it's not until the kid comes around and starts to change his heart that you start to love him. This one, we're given all the best possible reasons to be on Murray's side, no matter how much of a uh, of a lazy jerk he is in a certain respect. But I have a question for you in terms of Murray as a character, because it does tie into his development. Is the problem that Murray experiences a symptom of what would be emerging in the 60s with the counterculture? Or is it just layabout who had a nervous breakdown around the job that he has chosen for his profession and the uh, attention of kids finally made him snap? (laughs) I... I think it's I think it's both. I think, you know, the the idea and, and you know, I, I just keep coming back to the things that draw me uh, to these to this film and, and this, these characters. And that is the the idea of integrity is strong, not just in his work, but in life. Right. Like mm-hmm. so like, you know, it, it's it's almost like the the Holden Caulfield. Everyone's a faker thing where where he's like the last person to admit that everybody's faking. I mean, you know, jumping ahead just a little, um, when he's going on the when he's going on the interviews and he meets with the guy, uh, the the uh, producer who wants to hire him, who's like, oh, you know, we'll we'll do some race relations stuff, we'll do some heart, and you know, oh, the panel the panel show guy, yeah, 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 and it's like you know, it, it's like it's he just keeps getting met with all of these things that are just fake. And they're not real. And, and, you know, it's going, it's, you know, it's not funny. And, you know, to borrow a line from Nick towards the end, you know, you, my friend, you know, I, I know funny and you are not funny, you know, like, yeah. is it, and that's, and, and that's really what a lot of this comes down to is just integrity. It's the idea that everybody is, is marching to the same the same march in the same you know pomp and circumstances except for murray and he doesn't want nick to march like everyone else no he wants he wants nick to march uh, to march in a direction where he's aware like he wants him to be postmodern about it he wants him to be self-aware or meta i guess is the terminology we can use in a 
world where Scream exists. Um, <laughs> I love Scream, by the way. That wasn't a dig on Scream. <laughs> uh, but, but the word meta gets used so often that I'm just like, I think it lost its meaning a while, a long time ago. Um, but there is this there is this defiance against an authority. And I like that you brought up the idea of the fakery and what's, what makes it hilarious is that his profession is surrounded by make-believe. It's right. That's the very reason that he, it's, it's like any writer having a nervous breakdown of ghost going like nothing, nothing, none of this is real. I've got to be more realistic with my art. It's like when I, I, I guess it's, the f- it seems it seems weird. It's kind of like the flip Spielberg had when he finally decided I'm not going to portray the Nazis in an Indiana Jones movie anymore because I've been through the filming of Schindler's List. So if I do another Indiana Jones movie, it ain't going to be the Nazis as the villains because I can't trivialize that. Um, so like there is this awareness that he gains as an adult, but Murray's realization is that he has become too attached to the job that he has writing for this what sounds to be cheap local broadcast TV clown and the, the very idea of how he rebels against it is virtually just yelling at something that isn't there. Like I, I literally love that he just, in senses. Yeah. Yeah. He, I love that. He just yells out into the air. <laughs> it is like, it's the, the, the equivalent you have now is a YouTube rant, right? But, but I think that there's some power in the the material speaking to a mundane a mundane existence that wasn't fully questioned at a certain point in early Hollywood. Um, we aren't addressing matters of self reflection and destiny and fate and realizing your potential in this form until the sixties and. It's just the it's I think this is one of those cases where this film is hitting at the right time for the right generation for the right moment. Um, It's it's um, it's similar to how people perceive Get Out's reception when it came out. It came out at the exact right moment to hit on a certain zeitgeist of what was happening. But then you realize kind of similar to A Thousand Clowns, Get Out is touching on something that was always there. That was there. Right. yeah, and a thousand clowns is doing the same thing. We're touching on the uh, what it is like to work in an environment that you find unstimulating to your creative development or emotional development and growth. And I feel like the beauty of this film, which we'll we'll expound upon a little bit more in a second, but the beauty of this film is that it finds a middle ground that I think gets unheralded in a world where you seemingly need to go big or go home. Right. Um, it, it, but I think as time has gone on as, and as I've gotten older, certainly I've realized that that, that um, do or do not, there is no try is, is sort of fake in right. its own respect because it's a perception that has been pushed upon you as a result of this generation having that realization. Um, now, but that's not a detriment. And we'll talk about why Murray has, in my mind, he has every reason to kind of go through this crisis, especially at this moment. Doesn't excuse his inability to find other work around him. Right. um, But don't worry, he's going to answer to Albert Amundsen, (laughs) Amundsen, played by William Daniels, uh, who 
I've never watched Saint Elsewhere, but I've seen clips of Saint Elsewhere, so I know he's been in that. Um, and uh, but uh, Barbara Harris too as Dr. Sandra Markowitz, um, who I I got to be honest, it's Gross Point Blank and Freaky Friday and Family Plot for me. Yeah, those three keys. I love Barbara Harris. I love her in Family Plot a lot, specifically, and this same charm that she has in Family Plot, which is an imperfect Hitchcock movie, is right there from the moment she brought, popped up on screen in this movie. Like, you are so, you are right in her shoes. Like, yeah. she, the, the breakdown that she has is the one that Murray already had. <laughs> um, so we have uh, Arnold, uh, or, or sorry, you have Albert and Sandra entering as social services. And they're here to confront Murray about this whole living situation. Right. (laughs) In a single room apartment (laughs) where, um, uh, uh, as he refers to it later on in the movie, his, uh, Nick has an alcove. (laughs) Um, and we get Nick vehemently defending Murray and trying to prop it up as, oh, my teachers are overreacting. I'm not in an unstable environment. Um, and then it devolves into, well, one, I we've got to talk about the doll, the, the or the, the or the the light up doll or the lamp with the booby lights. The, the, mm, mm. <laughs> I st- so Nate. Yeah. Two, two, somewhere close to two years ago, I wanted to start a show about Golden Age Hollywood, and I um and 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 consequently the '60s and and its supposed downfall, and um uh I I had come to expect certain language, <laughs> certain language that um I knew wouldn't fully be surpassed until Mash when he somebody finally said the word fuck, and yeah. uh damn and uh, hell and uh, bastard had popped up every so often. The word boobies <laughs> is as early as 1965. Now, my question is, is boobies a New York dialect <laughs> adjacent origin? Right. What's the etymology of, of boobies? Yeah. I, we, what, what is the origin of boobies? I need... I need a PBS special about this. Um, no, not Netflix. They, I don't need them doing any more documentaries. We need to give something to PBS, and I think the origin of boobies, because this, this lamp gag or this, uh, this electric doll gag, the my first thought immediately was the lamp and Christmas story. Like which, that was my, f- which is hilarious. Do you know why that's hilarious? So I'm assu- I'm assuming Bob Park Clark's a fan of this movie. <laughs> no, um, supposedly, um, and I I couldn't I couldn't uh, validate this anywhere. Supposedly, Herb Gardner based the character on Gene Shepard, Gene Shepard, who wrote the stories that became A Christmas Story. <laughs> wow! So wow! Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> that it invokes that. I don't think is a coincidence. No, no, no. I, I, there's, there's, there's very little to no coincidence. The, 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 the difference is, is that the way Christmas Story fronts it, any form of language is getting you soap in the mouth instantly. Right. Right. Um. Uh. Which I'm thankful that 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 
tradition had long since passed when I started learning what curse words were. But it's just, it's a little abrasive. And he says it so casually that like, you know, it's one thing to harp on language being used in film, but this is just so in your face, honest. Um, and it's not, it's, it's just, it's treated as a matter of fact. Yeah. There's no intent to shock necessarily. The shock comes from the fact that he is so casual about it and the conversation around it, especially off of Sandra and Albert is probably more disturbing than him saying the word boobies because they try to associate it to a fixation with his mother. Yes. Yeah. It's very Freud. It's very Freud. Yeah, which that concept has floated around Golden Age Hollywood for years. You can see the Black Cat, you can see the Silver Cord, you can see Psycho. These films from the pre-code era all the way into Hitchcock showing Mother Bates, is it's all present there. But the fact that they add this extra piece (laughs) is so incredible. And the way that Murray tries to deflect, it's like you realize that Murray has a filter. And... Nick has one, but it's uh, it's a child's filter. So it's kind of redirected towards children's honesty rather than the 40-year-old man in him telling him to back off. Um, so in a sense, he is a kid, but there's 40-year-old tendencies and grudges stuck inside of him somehow. Um, now, when they go into the explanation of it, as we talked about before, it puts you right in Murray's side as to why he is taking care of this child. We also get, <laughs> I love the, the, the blocking of this because it's a wide and it starts off at the door and Arnold played by Marty Balsam walks in, delivers the fruit and then just awkwardly walks, walks out, right out. <laughs> within the same motion. And we were touching on Spielberg earlier for, uh, for inspiration for Lincoln center in this film. Spielberg's one of the best directors at blocking that's ever existed on this planet. He, I don't, I don't know how he does it. And I don't know if I'll ever find out, but the, the attention to detail and blocking is incredible in this film. And it's exemplified by that camera move. Cause it never feels guilty. It's actually one of the smoothest looking things in the movie that you're likely to see in terms of a, a sort of static moment. Like it's not, it's not pushing anything boundary wise from a visual aesthetic. But it is like an example of speed. And the closest that I've seen is Norman Z. McLeod doing this stuff for W.C. Fields or the Marx Brothers or um, a, a Hope movie. Like the, these these movements are just timed to the performer and not to the camera's intent. And Marty Balsam has a dancer's foot. Like that's, that's kind of footwork that you learn for years on stage. He's not a vaudevillian but he's a stage actor and you can tell through and through it's, it's remarkable to witness him doing that. Um, it's also remarkable to watch Murray push Albert's buttons and find Sandra's soft spot all in the same breath because Albert's this officious bureaucratic SOB <laughs> um, and Sandra is empathetic and compassionate uh, and cannot stand some of her custody cases. <laughs> right. Which is, which that, is also great in that time period th- to have a social worker who is literally like, I hate that kid. <laughs> like, <laughs> I hate that kid. I tried 
to learn more about him. And then the more I learned about him, the more I hated him. <laughs> and and then we get this. I was not expecting this. And that becomes a love story. <laughs> Out of nowhere. So yeah. you, know what's, you know what's really incredible about this love story, too? And it's one of the things that, that you know, I keep bringing it back. One of the things that draws. There's so many facets to this. Um, it's a reverse manic pixie dream girl story. Right. Mm-hmm. So like instead of the instead of the manic pixie dream girl coming in and changing his life and showing him how to be free, he enters her life and shows her how to be free. But then like it's a mutual it's a mutual thing because she also c- helps him find just enough stability to play the game, you know, and yeah, <laughs> but still it's, remain it, himself. Jason Robards is just going like, so what am I, a manic pixie dream dude? Ah, <laughs> all right. Ah, oh, I'm I'm every woman's fantasy. I'm Jason Robots. <laughs> that that that's that wouldn't picture in my mind in a million years, and yet I have the film to prove it. Right. And you're right. It it's very like it's it's uh, it's it's the let your freak flag fly, uh the the hobo philosophy, I guess, and to a certain extent. And he, and she her unwinding it's it's kind of like watching Leo Bloom and the producers unwind um, in in any version. Like he does like because of the breakdown that they have physically and emotionally on screen, it it becomes more believable when they've learned to relax while still maintaining some form of their integrity. Right. Um, and we it just I, but of all the ways that you could have transitioned from outside of the from inside this apartment to the outdoors. This one's pretty perfect with the blaring of this ship as it's leaving dock and they're bidding it farewell and and it's the start of something new as Murray points it out like it's a, it's a fresh start so to speak and we are then treated to more of this cinema verite and like this seems like a shot that TV directors down the line ended up taking up especially like a like like uh like that th- that girl where you have this push in on Barbara Harris looking like the Statue of Liberty and it's it's just so energetic and i guess one question that i should have for anybody watching this film is how does what does the what do the montages do to enhance this film for you like what is the thing that you can pinpoint as something like this enhances the piece um and what may and and gives it the extra kick it needs what is it for you like how what does it make you feel well here's here's what makes me curious about it is that this montage is is a lot of exteriors it's a lot of the verite which leads me to believe that it was part of the reshoots right so so what is it goes back to wanting to see it but not wanting to see it what what tells us that these two people are falling for each other without that montage? Because it's mm-hmm. not it's not dialogue other than him explaining his worldview and her kind of accepting it. Right. It's 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 literally it's it's fast tracking the two of them <laughs> getting together. Right. Like it's it's the scene. It's the scene in Chasing Amy to bring it back to, to Kevin Smith, where, you know, where we, you know, see Joey and pigtails as Holden's talking and, and, and you know, all set to, you know, uh, different scenes in New York and, you know, him helping her with the childproof lighter and stuff like that. It's it's building the relationship between them in as 
efficiently as and as quickly as possible to be able to get them to that next scene. Did Kevin did Kevin watch this film? Yeah. I I, I want to know now. I now I gotta know now because it's I uh, this has got to be something you see on TV or in the theater at some point. Like, well, if um, he ever watches Dream a Little Dream, this will be my follow up. <laughs> <laughs> I've waited 20 years. Here, you finally watched this one. Now I'm going to wait another... Sir, 26 20, years. 26 years. Now I'm going to wait another 26. Here's a thousand clowns of Jason Robards. And you just throw a Kino Lorber disc at it. No, but that is an excellent parallel. And, you know, the, the, the montage into love is something that comes as this patchwork when done correctly looks beautiful, but right. it is sort of a patchwork to a problem that golden age Hollywood tended to have a lot, which is suddenly somebody's in love. Um, the love story is immediately rushed. My, my girlfriend, I've started showing her more golden age Hollywood films since we started dating this, this thing always comes up in some form or fashion. And it's not a bad thing to bring up because it's true. The screenwriting is being built to such a degree especially with this fractory mentality in mind that like, all right, get the lovers together now and then let them be in love for a little bit. Then give them one like thing that could tear the whole thing apart. But in the first reel, they need to be together at a certain point. And, you know, to your point though, uh, another aspect of that, I think is the fact that like, so she, um, spends the night, right? So in, in, I, I'm not, I'm trying to think of other things from around that time, but in 65, if she's spending the night, they better be in love if from, from, uh, from, a uh, a, a, a content, you know, place, not from real life, but like, you know, d- to present that there is more here, it's not just like a one night stand or it's not just like a hookup or something like that, which didn't exist on screen, but is something more. It, 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 it has to get there to be able to kind of touch those third rails. I think we might be able to thank Billy Wilder for opening up that door then because the apartment, apartment. yep, it, it's very existence is based off of the concept of it not being about love in order to es- establish the, the p- premise. Um, but we did a film like the, by the time that this comes out, this episode will already be out. But um, we talked about Can Can from 1960, and there's scenes with Shirley MacLaine like actively pushing against that. And this is the same year in which Billy Wilder is saying, "No, let's 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 kick down that door." And it's the same year that Psycho kicked down its door. Hitchcock's going like, "Say, what if we just..." bash this in with a with a with a big old stick um because that that whole notion is the code going down the drain right the mpaa is imminent jack valenti's ascension is nigh and um and then it and we were talking about kevin smith fucks with kevin's day for 500 days to sunday not to mention trey parker matt stone and other filmmakers who address sex and but this is the start of it saying, no, we can start addressing this. We're fucking adults here. Let's let's just talk about this the way we talked about it f- up until about 1933. Right. Um, and I think that her embarrassment is the only truly dated thing that I see in regards to the romantic relationship. And I think, and it's, and it's so slight, but it's just the walk of shame thing. But right. it, it's... It's so tied into 
their relationship and her switch as a character that it's it's not like it's not like looking at the apartment and you could find 500 ways why the love plot by the end is problematic as sin but you can still kick back and watch that film this film doesn't absolutely have that per se and what's more it actually it does do a little bit of accelerating because suddenly she's moving in and suddenly she's wanting a key and suddenly she's redecorating the apartment. And I, I would find this unbelievable had I not experienced this in my own life. (laughs) And sometimes life is just very accelerated and you accept it and you embrace, embrace that chaos to some, to create something beautiful. Um, And so when I saw this, it was actually like, put into perspective the last four months of my life in a, in a beautiful way. And to add to that, it doesn't matter that he's in love. He still has this problem of Nick, who, by the way, after the whole social services scene, disappears for the next, what, 30, 40 minutes of the movie? Yeah. He's, and and, and now, has a heart out too. Like he's just like, oh, wh-, they're like, where are you going? He's like, oh, I'm going to stay upstairs because he knows what's going to happen. He's, he's like, yeah, I, I know how. I know what Murray's friends being over means. Right, like, exactly. It's either somebody's gonna get hit with a beer bottle or somebody's gonna be put in the bed. <laughs> um, and, and I love how he just kind of climbs up, just going like, I right, see you in a couple of days. Man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but then the 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 we start seeing a little bit more of Arnold involved in this. Um, and I was curious because I found, I found out about the Oscar win before watching the film. And I was trying to figure out, well, where is Arnold's moment? Where's the Oscar moment that you get? Because there has to be something, there has to be something going on. It's, you know, like it's the scene, like Judy Dench and Shakespeare in love. You're giving her the Oscar because of that eight minutes. Um, and I love that Arnold is a character that reveals himself logically. Um, it's not undeserved because Murray is a very good boxer and Arnold becomes a very good punching bag for the first part of everything that's happening in this film. Um, he is actively trying to still get him a job. He's trying to mend the bridge between Murray and Chuckles. Right. Um, and uh, and getting him other work like on a panel show or being or on a TV series that's imminent and Murray is just putting up the walls and it's then it seems like the the position is laid out all right well until the social services people tell me otherwise I can go about my routine and hey I've got Barbara Harris here and that ain't too bad so things will be working out great for Murray this unemployed now in love uh irresponsible vagabond and then Albert comes back <laughs> um, like a killjoy from the blue. Um, and I think William Daniels shines here. It's mm-hmm. such a, I'd say, I don't know if you agree with me, but I feel like it's, it's gotta be very difficult to play the square. Yeah. And yet to bring such a powerful punch to the film. Because he's not wrong. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. That, that's what it comes down to is he's not wrong. Like, we don't want him to be right, but he's not wrong. Yeah, no, he's not. Like, yeah, it took me a minute because I'm just like, like how do I, how do, you're right. That's the best flat out statement. Because, I, and I love how he, he even, he's even like, he shows that he has empathy. Yeah. He's not, he's not a robot. 
he's he's a he's a human being, but like all human beings, we have different functions and facets around us, and his happens to be an efficiency and something that borders on, I guess, sociopathic or uh, borderline obsessive. Um, but it's not that. He's just aware of right and wrong and his moral outrage comes off as uh defensive or oh, like not defensive what's the word i'm looking for like abrasive right. like judgmental like you are you are irresponsible as sin you should not be caring for this child and yet he says i uh, i um i'll never win in a sh- i'll never win in a in a verbal match with you because uh and i and i admire you for being able to live the way you do and it's very clear from the look in your eye that you love Nick and have undergone all of these circumstances. And yet that doesn't excuse the fact that you have been fostering an unhealthy environment for the child. And the term unhealthy here is interesting because it's it's weird because these movies will always sympathize with the lovable loser and yet your your brain isn't i wonder how 1960s audiences saw a character like murray by comparison to today i'd have to imagine it's the same more or less right but but it seems like this lovable vagabond character is less is 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 received less well today because we'll immediately jump to um the, the internet arguments or film Twitter and talking about like this character is an irresponsible psycho shit. He's not likable, right. blah, 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 blah. Everything that Blake Snyder tells me, blah, 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 blah. You know? Well, you know what it reminds me of? And and here we go again, back to Kevin Smith. This should just be yeah. called the, the Kevin Smith episode. <laughs> but um but it's 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 the it's the it's it's Randall in Clerks versus Clerks Two. Where you, oh, where nothing oh. changes, nothing changes about that character. He is exactly the same as he was in ninety two, ninety three, um, ninety four, whenever that was, uh, and he's exactly the same. But now, for some reason, he's like a sad character. Like you don't like. I. I it was the first thing I said to Kevin when I saw Clerks two uh, after the screening. I said, "You correctly made a character that I always wanted to be." And then mm-hmm. and then turned him into a character that I may possibly be, but is not cool anymore. Right. Like, yeah, it, it's like it, it, there's an age where that works. Right. But then if you're still holding on to that and it kind of goes to the Murray thing about not wanting to be in lockstep and, you know, kind of refusing to jump in there, that at a certain point, it's just not cute anymore. You know. Right. It's it's um if. I love the Randall analogy because that I had the same realization not too long ago about the character of Randall. And I would attribute it directly to Murray too, because Murray lives a life. I live in a daydream. Yeah. But I don't know if I would, want to stay in that world. I've used this to actually describe Jackie Brown, which is my favorite film of all time. Robert Forster gets drawn into Jackie's mad world and he floats around in it like a daydream. But once the film ends and there's been a gun pointed at his head by Ordell, 
Uh, he has no problem. Well, he does have a he has hesitation, but sure. he he has a conviction to go. Sorry, Jackie, I I can't join you on another adventure. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm going to just keep my business open, uh, at least for now, and um, I hope you enjoy the 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 half a million dollars you have absconded from Samuel L. Jackson, <laughs> um, because it, it it's it's living in a daydream versus this reality, and. But Murray, oddly enough, feels like a combo between Randall in both Clerks and Clerks 2, especially by the end. Yeah. Because we we start seeing the cracks in this in the scene following where you have him and Sandra walking through the abandoned Chinese restaurant that is below this apartment building, which is I would love to know more about the tenement history of New York. And I've just learned recently that there's apparently a tenement museum in New York. So I oh, have something really? oh. to, yeah, I'll, I think I've still got the link. If not, I'll, I'll, I'll poke my friend for it. But she told me about this yesterday and I was just stunned by that. But this idea of these apartment buildings over businesses, which still exists, but specifically above these businesses that would have existed in the thir- 20s, 30s and 40s is just kind of remarkable to kind of think about to my mind, like the, the crowdedness of a big city, like, like you're from Philadelphia. I don't know if it has the same, uh, storied structure, but I can say that Colorado doesn't necessarily have that. Um, but I would imagine an East coast city like Philly would have that similar vibe to it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So like this walking through the abandoned restaurant is sort of, is sort of like this lovely, peaceful fortress of solitude for Murray to unload a bit. Um, and he he goes into this spiel, um, a, a, which takes them from out of the restaurant onto the fire, the fire escape. escape. But, he, yeah. but he has like, I just want him to stay with me until I can be sure he won't turn into Norman nothing. I want to be sure that he'll know when he's chickening out on himself I want him to get to know exactly the special thing he is or else he won't notice it when it starts to go. I want him to stay awake and know who the phonies are. I want him to know how to holler and put up an argument. I want a little guts to show before I can let him go. I want to be sure he sees all the wild possibilities. I want him to know it's worth all the trouble just to give the world a little goosing when you get the chance. And I want him to know the subtle, sneaky, important reason why he was born a human being and not a chair. I'm, and I'm laughing not because it's bad dialogue. I'm laughing because I the, that's the best final line you could ever possibly have. It's so <laughs> like it's, it's so great. It's like if you gave Groucho Marx ham, uh, a, a soliloquy from Hamlet and then he just added one of his own jokes at the end of it. Because mm-hmm. um, it's just, it's so remarkable to hear Murray bear his soul. You start seeing that crack in the, as we've been talking about with the Randall persona, you start seeing this crack in Murray and you start seeing the sparkle in Sandra's eyes that, oh, he can meet me halfway. Yeah. Because that's that's ultimately what it is. Like we talk about like how she gets transformed by Murray, but she doesn't like appall her entire moral code or uh, uh, knowledge of right and wrong. She just learns to loosen up in a way that's beneficial to her mental health. But she sees this as the sign of, 
all right, he's going to go get a job and he's going to be responsible so that he can go to this hearing for Nick, um, which um, uh, Nick, by the way, we don't know if at that hearing he would be referred to as Nick. <laughs> right. <laughs> because what's bad? We, I, I'm so sad that I backed off on the, or, or that I skipped this, but we have to talk about the names. The names? Of Nick. Uh-huh. The names. I wrote them all down. <laughs> I've got, I, I've, I got it on a sheet here myself. Yeah, but all right. Well, so he had so, a thing for dogs. <laughs> right. So King and Rover. <laughs> Big Sam. Big Sam's my favorite. Really? Okay, we're going to get to mine in a little bit. But Little Max, Snoopy, which is my second favorite, <laughs> Chip, Rock, Rex, Mike, Marty, Lamont, Chevrolet, Woodrow, Lefty, The Phantom, Raphael Sabatini, and my favorite, Dr. Morris, Morris Fishbein. <laughs> that's, that's right. <laughs> It's unbelievable. It's 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 literally uh, 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 the uh, Sprouse kids calling themselves Frankenstein in Big Daddy, but you, you yes. know, decades before, and, and then and then you know seventeen more names. You know, <laughs> yeah. It's it's um because the the context is is that he didn't have a proper name because his mother didn't bother to give him a name, right? <laughs> and he made a deal with him. Uh, oh. Apart from a few years where he was affectionately known as Chubby. <laughs> this is part of the dialogue that I feel like people would have a problem with today, but I would I would I would urge them to be like just 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 accept how this is funny, please. <laughs> yes, yes, but exactly. He, he basically says by a certain age you need to pick a permanent name, and Nick has the is the one that has stuck around the most. Um and so we need to make sure that Nick AKA King, AKA Rover, okay. um, is uh, um, is repres- uh, that he can get to stay with Murray. So we go into this cross cutting that is fucking remarkable. The cross cutting is outstanding. It's between Murray going on the job interviews after getting a nice suit, and Barbara Harris as Sandra on the phone with her mother. And emotional, the emotional decline toward adulthood for her and reminder of why he made decisions for him. Right. Yes. Um, it's or, or chickening out. I would call it chickening out, actually, um, because we'll get to it in, in, in Arnold's thing. But the, the scenes unfold in such a way that are aggravating to watch. Like in the way you're like, it's like watching a train wreck. I have to watch this because it's a train wreck, but I'm appalled that I'm seeing a train wreck. Right. Um, and you are watching an emotional train wreck in motion. And the, 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 for Murray's side of it, it's scattered because he first goes into that meeting for the panel and he, he tells him basically your job is to say funny things. And then it was, it's, it's, it's aggravating to hear that fake laughter um, or I guess mediocre oh, that mediocre response to a mediocre gag, right? Exactly uh, coming out of his coming out of that executive's mouth, and then the second one is great because Robards doesn't say a thing. It's a guy pitching a show called Homicide, but he pitches it as something revolutionary coming out of the counterculture, right? Exactly, <laughs> or 
or intrinsically philosophical. And it's, and it's like, it's called homicide. <laughs> and, um, and then we get Chuckles, the chipmunk, a.k.a. Leo Herman, who looks like he's about to put a gun in his mouth. <laughs> and that's not said as a denigration to, to that notion. It's just that's the look on his face. And the excitement on his face when he thinks for one moment that Murray is coming back. Yep. Because Murray's gone into Arnold's office after having already walked out of the two and Arnold gives him shit and then gets back on his side with like, you really have the balls to walk out of that meeting. <laughs> like, um, Which shows that even Arnold is a human that can connect to the positive sides of his brother's attitude. And I love the editing between Chuckles getting the phone call, Arnold on the phone, and then it suddenly cuts and the door is swinging around because Murray has bolted. It's just, and the look on Arnold's face of just like, oh no. <laughs> like, because he knows. Why? <laughs> yeah, he knows exactly what the fuck has happened. Um, and consequently, Sandra's got this very wise mother over the phone. <laughs> <laughs> telling her like basically without us hearing a beat we are indicated to the fact that yes Sandra is happy but she's not in a positive environment so to exactly speak. exactly and then it culminates in this scene with her meeting him after she thinks he's got a job and he doesn't and we get the most elaborate apology that has ever existed. One that I think Richard Nixon should have taken notes on. <laughs> just just throwing it out there. Um, but because uh, he was around when this film came out. Um, but it is literally a dance of uh, what it's a pathetic dance. I, I would call it a dance of pathetic behavior because he basically it boils down to she just flat out says that you didn't take any of the jobs. And then she has this lovely line after she flashes back to the boat and he's trying to distract her from the sorrow of this affair. And she basically says, I understand why Nick loves it here. I would too. If I was, if I was 14 and then just leaves and leaves her files behind. Right. Which the question that I, the only question that I would probably have is like, did she intentionally do that? So she could have a reason to come back and try to reconcile. I think she's just more or less just kind of like shell shocked a little bit by that revelation. Um, but it, it brings us down to the all is lost. If we were going by a beat sheet and in tandem with this, we finally get that Oscar moment for Arnold because I love Marty Balsam, and I'll always think of him as Arbogast from Psycho. I think second place is A Thousand Clowns because this this outburst of rage that has been building in Arnold is fucking remarkable. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 the last straw. Like it's the it's the 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 hair that broke the camel's back. You know. Yeah, and it's this is this is the. I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna lay in the scene for people audibly so they can hear Arnold breaking it down. 
gotta know what day it is. I gotta know what's the name of the game and what the rules are without anyone else telling me. You gotta own your own days and name them. Each one of them. Every one of them. Or else the years go right by and none of them belong to you. And that ain't just for weekends, kiddo. Well, here it is, the uh, day after Irving R. Feldman's birthday, and I never even congratulated him. Murray! Ooh. <laughs> well, what's so funny? I scared myself. <laughs> Murray, I've long been aware... I've long been aware that you don't respect me so much. No. I suppose there are a lot of brothers who don't get along, but in reference to us and considering the factors, it sounds like a contract, doesn't it? Unfortunately for you, Murray, you want to be a hero. If maybe a fella falls into the lake, you can jump in and save him. There's still that kind of stuff. Uh, who gets opportunities like that in uh, midtown Manhattan with all that traffic? I'm willing to deal with the available world. I don't choose to shake it up, but to live with it. There's the people who spill things, and there's the people who get spilled on, and I don't choose to notice the stains. I have a wife, and I have children, and business, like they say, is business. I'm not an exceptional man, so it's possible for me to stay with things the way they are. I'm lucky. I'm gifted. I have a talent for surrender. And I'm at peace. But you? Oh, you're cursed. And I like you, Murray. So it makes me sad. You don't have the gift, and I can see the torture of it. All I can do is worry for you, but I will not worry for myself. You can't convince me that I'm one of the bad guys. I get up. I go, I lie a little, I peddle a little, I watch the rules, I talk the talk. We fellows have those offices high up there so that we can catch the wind and go with it, however it blows. But, and I'm not going to apologize for it, I take pride. I am the best possible Arnold Burns. Give my regards to Irving R. Feldman, will you? Hey, Arnold. Murray, please allow me once to leave a room before you do. And what we've just heard is... Basically, somebody's saying, like, look, there's nothing pathetic about having a reliable job <laughs> and stability in life. And use and he basically tells the equivalent to uh, Murray of, like, you see my life as defeat or surrender. And I I love when he like when he like barks and then he goes like, sorry, I didn't realize I still had that in me <laughs> like it, that that expression of of a vent of venting is remarkable. And it started off 
in the scene with him stopping this John Philip Sousa marching band music. And then as he's about to leave, Murray tries to speak and Arnold says, Murray, for once, let me have the last word before leaving the room. (laughs) And then starts the music again, like a badass walking off. Like it's, it's the comedy equivalent to a certain extent of walking behind an explosion. Right. Like it's, you look fucking cool doing it. Um, and, uh, and this is like, uh, it's not the final moment of this marching band music, but I want to take a moment to address it because it's blaring as sin. And if you were to put this, because we both do podcasts, so we're both dealing with some form of interface, whether it's audacity or audition. If you put this in audition, I guarantee you I'm going to see peaking audio every five minutes. It's absolutely going to clip. Yeah. Yeah, if you listen to this on the Blu-ray version, don't think that this is a bad transfer. It's not. It's there, and it's drowning out the reality that Murray needs to find. Like, it's a distraction for Murray, and it operates as such, especially in that Chinese restaurant. Um, and then we get the, the ultimate wraparound to Nick picking a name. And this is the part, this is the moment where the film starts to melt your heart. Yeah. Because he picks the name of Murray. And I, I loved watching an emotional climax like that. Like, I I don't know, like, I mean, like the first time I watched it, I wondered if it was throwing off the momentum, but the fact that we had this scene prior with Arnold breaking down, we're starting to, and, and also Sandra, like this, this would be seen as schmaltzy, but it doesn't, it feels earned. And I want to ask Nate, this seems to remind me of the moments where Spielberg hits emotional poignancy. Uh, And Kevin Smith in Clerks 2. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. You know, and and here's a, a weird way to kind of watch, if you watch this movie again, kind of, if you watch the character of Murray and you kind of just look at a subtext, look at it as, um, somebody battling addiction okay because mm. because the way that nick knows how to dance around him and he knows when to give and when to back off reminds me of a child with a parent who is an addict and and knows how to how to hold his own but also when to kind of shy away and even the conversation with the the um caseworker you know with william daniels um he's he's doing he's doing the excusing for the parent and then you know uh the the outburst albert's outburst is kind of like the the last chance like i'm trying to get into your head i'm trying to make you see that this is you know that this is your issue um it's like don burnham's brother in the lost weekend yeah especially near the beginning yeah yeah so like so it's it's you know and and I feel like the the moment when uh, Nick takes the name Murray is kind of like the awakening of like I have essentially I have a reason to live you know like I, mm-hmm. there there is a purpose to this this kind of fallacy that this life is there is a purpose here and maybe I do need to kind of reel it in some to focus on this purpose 
Right. It's you you start finding the 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 compromise that we all have to reach. Yeah. And it's not but and and what what's amazing about Murray's transformation is that he never that, that he finally realizes that it's not defeat. Yes. I think the beautiful part of this whole thing and we can tie this back into clerks too again here specifically the jail scene acquiescing to your situation in life without losing your awareness of it is a powerful moment of revelation that we all possess it's a very human condition and what's beautiful about a thousand clowns reaching it is that it is devoid of a trope that Golden Age Hollywood leans into, which is fantasy. Mm-hmm. And and that's not every single piece of Golden Age Hollywood. We've obviously talked about films from the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s that do specifically go into the realm of uncomfortability and have very mature discussions. But this is such a universal thing that goes against the be appreciative of counter blessings instead of sheep, essentially, um, which seems to be a little bit more of a fall in line mentality. And you have in that something remarkable for film comedy. Um, I can't speak to drama because it'd be hard. You'd be hard pressed to say that this falls in the same line as the apartment necessarily, or something like that, because they're going at very different harsh ideas. But the, but a thousand clowns is so accessible in its approach to a to a, addressing this issue, and it's part of why that idea can still hold water. I think the difference is we've become a little bit more cynical, and I, I express that because by bringing up the jail scene in Clerks too. I remember getting older because when I first saw that film, I'm like, well, this is a masterpiece, clearly. There's no reason that anybody would have any issue with this film. It's kind of like when I went to Force Awakens where I was like, this is fun. It's not like anybody's going to ever have any problems with Star right. Wars ever again. Um, and then I was wrong. And <laughs> um, But then learning old, when I got older that Clerks 2 had its detractors because of Kevin getting soft with the material. Because right. Clerks is undeniably a very dirty, harsh, grungy movie. Um, Not necessarily, well, because of the visual aesthetic, but also because of the language being used and the character intent. But it shows people growing up. And Randall's realization of like, all right, I may not love the quick stop in theory, but in practice, it has proven to be the most fun I've ever had, which is just hanging out with my friends watching movies. And I think Murray's revelation is like, you know, in practice, me hanging out with Chuckles the Chipmunk is not my idea of heaven, but it allows me the opportunity to provide an income for this kid that I love so much and want to see succeed and to become a little mini me and maybe change the world for the better. And... In that respect, it is so remarkable to watch this transformation in seemingly what would take three hours on stage. We get it through film because of the execution of montage, cross-cutting, really economizing out of necessity rather than innovation. And 
it all culminates really with watching his full transformation in effect when Chuckles the Chipmunk comes to the house or which the is, apartment. Which is the, like, to me, like, the penultimate scene. Like, it is just, uh, or or not even penultimate. It's the ultimate scene. It is it. Like, uh, the, just the dance between the three characters just essentially um, calling each other's bullshit. <laughs> My and- biggest fear is that Barry Gordon will say exactly to me what he tells Leo. <laughs> You're not do, funny. Do, it's, <laughs> I, I have it right here because it is literally, it, it, is, it is my everything. It is my simple child reaction of what you did is that you are not funny. Like that is just a dagger. Like especially the uh, funnier than you is Stuart Sloshman, who is my friend and is 11 and puts walnuts in his mouth and makes, <laughs> makes noises. It's, it's, it's so perfect. It's so perfect. And it's such a slap in the face of a guy who thinks that kids love him. And yeah. here and here is just a mini Murray in his face telling him that he's a fraud. Yeah. And you know Nick has gone along the threshold of accepting adults and their nonsensical behavior uh whether it's somebody coming up with irving r feldman's birthday which is is of course as we all know the birth date of one of new york's greatest delicatessen owners (laughs) that's ever existed on this planet um going to the junkyard uh for for purveyors of lost goods uh watching somebody as officious as Sandra or as conflicted as Sandra watching somebody as uptight as has as um has uh Ar- Armand and watching somebody as fluid as Arnold and yet this is the moment where he fully decides to break down and I guess it's ultimately there's a crossroads that's going on here because Murray is learning to be an adult but Nick's reverting to a child. To a child, yes. Yeah, and so the ro- the roles are very much becoming what they are traditionally supposed to be. Now, Barry Gordon in that interview talks about what makes the film brilliant to him is that it's a counterculture movie, sort of. Is that in, in, in effect, it is embracing the principles that would found the counterculture. And yet, Murray doesn't give up everything. He ultimately settles into the nuclear aesthetic, but he does it on his terms. Yes. And that was about the summation of what he describes it as. And that's what it is. Things fall into place the way Golden Age Hollywood would dictate. But the difference is we are aware of it. We have become self-aware of this ending. And in a sense, the audience is going to respond positively to that because they are not being treated like children. Exactly. This movie does not treat you like a child. It shows you what happens when we revert to the stages that society deems. And I think that's kind of a remarkable soft touch. And I think it comes from Fred Coe being a relatively unobtrusive director. The, The montages are glamorous. But... And if I'm wrong, please feel free to to swap me down on this. But I think Fred Coe's biggest strength is that he's not interfering with those actors. Oh, he is not absolutely. Interf- and he is not interfering with flashy camera work 
in the moments. It's very much all the pieces are here. I don't need to touch a damn thing. The only thing that counteracts that is the necessity for the filler that we get. But I think that's more an example of he the, this two hour and 45 minute cut must have been something good because there was it was something worth salvaging. Otherwise, they would have just shelved it. Right. You know, it's and, just that. Oh, yeah, go ahead. No, so, no, you go ahead. You know, it, I think, though, that that it comes back to um, the Playhouse 90 stuff to me. And and that is because, you know, uh, and, and it's also it goes back to your question about um, uh, adaptations in, in film um, that um, stage shows um, primarily plays musicals also, but but stage shows um, uh, and, and, and theater are a writer's medium. Like the writer, mm-hmm. the writer kind of dictates everything in that, you know, the director, you know, coaxes performances and whatnot, but, but everything is there. Stage direction, stuff like that. It's all on the page, right? Whereas film is a director's medium where, you know, or at least it used to be, but whatever. Uh, <laughs> there's another argument there. All right. Settle down, Scorsese. <laughs> it used to be. Tell Kevin yeah. Feige it's a director's medium. But anyway, so like... Uh, but no, so <laughs> just somebody get him the memo. Uh, yep. Uh, um, though I will say, Love and Thunder, the, he let his director do whatever oh, yeah, the hell there, he wanted. There's an, there's an identity there, and it's all Taika, and I'm all on board for it. Yeah. It was a uh, side tangent. It's not, as, it's not as fun as Ragnarok for me, but I really like Love and Thunder. I yeah, thought it was me too. lots of fun. Yeah. Um, but you're right. You're right. This is not, this is, it's funny because we have the blending of two mediums. By the perfect bridge. Yes. Because Fred Coe understood television, which television is also a writer's medium. Yeah. But we're seeing the shift now to it becoming a director's and writer's medium because arguably, arguably the HBO era really changed everything with that, especially Sopranos, where you could lift off and tackle these heavier subjects on cable and then arguably, I always make the argument for Boardwalk Empire doing this, but Scorsese directing that pilot. And then you have uh, other people like Tim Van Patten coming in and directing their episodes. Ryan Johnson on Breaking Bad. Um, um, and then the Duffer Brothers and Sean Levy with Stranger Things, where you can see the difference in visual style, but it's all attuned to the same thematic structure. Yeah, And that, th- that to me is interesting because fred Coe kind of did that early on but he had different hats to wear so he's not only adhering to the writer's medium with herb gardner's words and in fact if anything he's giving herb gardner carte blanche to rewrite scenes on the fly especially if they've got to fix the film in quotes but he's also adhering to the writer's medium of theater by not interfering with potentials of stage direction until the camera deems it necessary. Exactly. He's got guidelines. He's got a guideline book, which it sounds bad when you tell a when you say that a director has a guidebook because it it means that they don't have any spark of creativity by theory. I'd argue that's the opposite. More often than not, the most creative directors are the ones who are doing something and you don't realize they're doing it. That's right. Um, like the like Mel Brooks. It took me years to realize that Mel Brooks was one of the greatest directors that's ever lived because he was so seamlessly recreating a film genre 
in sincerity that I didn't realize it because I was just so enamored by the comedy that was so uh, obtuse. But you watch Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein. That's a horror movie and a Western movie. He just stuck more jokes in there. That's you, all. I mean, even even later in life, you watch Men in Tights, and and he's he's giving you an Errol Flynn movie. Like it's 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 yeah. unbelievable. Yeah, and Fred Coe is doing that unobtrusiveness to an advantage, and it culminates, I think, in the chuckle scene because it's the most movement I think we see in the apartment from the camera. It's some of the most cutting, hands down. Um, you can tell that this is later in the production because I think Fred Coe understood where he needed to start finding coverage in different areas mm-hmm. because the preceding scenes don't suggest that. But when you have Gene Saxon here, you now have a second chance at the performance. And Gene Sax's mental breakdown. This is every creator that's ever existed, ever. But hoping to God that none of us are Chuckles the Chipmunk. Yes. It's like watching a pathetic clown beg. And it is so distressing. And your heart breaks for this gentleman and then suddenly despises him by the end because his attitude shifts to, I am the star. I am Alan Brady. Right. I am. I am Tracy Jordan. I am the star of this show. And that's its own little transformation that happens in just a scene. And we've only had one other prior exposure to him. But the other element of this child's host having some kind of a crisis, I know exactly where this got picked up years later. And it was called Death to Smoochie. And it was fucking amazing. Yes. Yes. Underrated. Totally underrated classic. And I want to know if Danny DeVito watched this this scene in particular to show Robin Williams and uh, Edward Norton and be like, this is the attitude we're going for here. But I'm just allowed to do way more by comparison to what they were able to get away with. Um, And by the end of it, you watch... Nick fully realize what his uncle has done for him after he has a pretty much an explanation for it, which is this idea of just like, look, this is the only way I'm going to be able to keep you. And it's, it's so simple. The film ends very quaintly and sort of rushedly were it not for the final shot. But we kind of wrap up the threads because also Sandra comes back in the middle of the conversation and she is aware that what she wanted is going to happen by the joke. uh, Chuckles the Chipmunk mean Minnie Mouse. (laughs) Um, And that allows her to come back with such conviction about the condition of things that she had done to fix up the apartment. Um, And you see this bombastic montage uh, quick cut which actually looks like it came out of the eighties because of the speed of it. Um, it kind of reminded me of like John, a John Hughes film or even like a, like a risky business where it just feels like there's something energetic about this, that if you set it to simple minds, it might work. Um, and, um, but it, 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 it shows us that things are going to be okay. And we get this final shot of Murray yelling out one last declarative monologue that he cannot finish. Yeah. Now, I have a question because I don't think I still have an answer to this, but you being a fan of this longer, why do you think Barry finally shuts up? 
um, yeah, that's a really good question. That is a really good question. I don't know that I have an answer. I don't like. Would can we? Can we? Can we pose what ifs on this? Because I don't have a definitive, but I have the inkling of the idea for me is that, and I think it circles back to how we grow as people. It's not that yelling doesn't do anything, but he's learned when to yell and when not to yell. That makes sense. Do you know what it reminds me of? And I again, back to Clerks Two. Here we go. Um, mm-hmm. The final shot of Clerks Two is we're pulling out when they have when it fades to black and white, and they have the realization that like, okay, we did this, but now we're stuck here. <laughs> it's yeah, like I think, I think Kevin. I can't remember if this is in the script because I used to have the script for Clerks Two. But I know that there is a comment that was made either in script form or by Kevin, which was the equivalent of, oh, my God, what have we fucking done? Right, (laughs) right. And especially as you're pulling back to misery by Soul Asylum. And that's what we get here in A Thousand Clowns, especially because he doesn't he doesn't like walk off confused. If anything, the difference between this and Clerks 2 is that it's almost like he has reached some acceptance. Yes, and he has control over his destiny, which is is the only thing that I can't say connects directly to Clerks 2 because, one, we're getting a Clerks 3, which clearly means there's more to this story. But also, the difference between this approach versus an approach that is a little bit more open-ended in the early to mid-2000s is that we need an ending we need a definitive ending because we don't have a viewless universe to contend with where we get Murray's side adventures with with two people he met at the bar. Um, right. You know, this is, I need a definitive ending and mine is going to be walking off knowing what I know and carrying that knowledge with me. It's, in a way, it's dangerous because it's pride, <laughs> but... And I've found that to be a very delicate condition in the world we live in today. Um, But it's a pride that seems healthy because it is for the proper intent of taking care of the people that you love. Uh, Here's a good example of it. Homer Simpson in the And Maggie Makes Three episode when he gets that sign that says, don't forget you work here forever. Right. And uh, and then he explains why there are no pictures of Maggie in the in the photo album and they're all on there and it rearranges the sign that says do it for her. It, and it's it, unbelievable, isn't it? Like it, it like even just talking it just you mentioning it there. I ju- I just got the chills from the first time I saw that I episode. I want to rewatch The over. Simpsons now. I want yeah. to go back. <laughs> Fans, seasons 1 through 10 are great. <laughs> they really are. I, yeah, the I like the rest of. I've still not caught up. Can I but can I tell you my cool. Simpsons theory? It's the same thing what as is my. It? It's the same thing as my Weezer theory. Is that mm-hmm. um, so? Um, I'll, I'll do the Simpsons quick jump to the Weezer, and then we'll get back to uh, yeah. uh, your regularly scheduled programming here. But um, the Simpsons yeah, yeah. are now being written by people who didn't know a world that didn't exist without the Simpsons. So they're writing Homer, they're writing Marge, they're writing Bart, they're writing they're writing things that have been in the zeitgeist. Whereas those right. first 10 years, people were just creating a new character. So like they yeah. so essentially it's almost like it's like fan fiction 
um, even though it's official. And it's the same thing with Weezer. So I, I've read this, that uh, w- one of the people that Rivers works with uh, co-writing songs now, um, because he's been using a co-writer since around the Red album, I think, um, is in a Weezer cover, a Weezer tribute band. So it's the same thing. Like, it's, it's, it's fan fiction. They're writing Weezer songs. He's not just writing a song. So um, that's my Simpsons theory for you. <laughs> that, no, that's, that's uh, incredibly astute. <clears throat> and I think that, that that actually ties into how we perceive. It's not necessarily related to A Thousand Clowns, but I think it is essential to Ballyhoo stuff. It's how we perceive people who homage this era directly. Yes. We are seeing the fan version of that element. Now, you can't connect it to a direct IP like Weezer or The Simpsons, but you can make an argument for Robert Altman doing a noir film uh, that doesn't quite hit a noir, but it feels so rich that it is a noir. Uh, Ryan Johnson doing Brick. Um, I'd argue this is a weird comparison, but... Uh, there's a movie called Brain Donors, um, uh, dire- uh, written by Pat Proft um, and directed directed by uh, Dennis Dugan, who does a lot of Adam Sandler stuff. It's essentially a Marx Brothers film that the Zucker brothers spearheaded in their production company in the 90s. Now, it bombed, and uh, there are multiple reasons for that. But it it's one of those exceptions where the fan fiction theory both works and doesn't work because they're essentially creating as pure a Marx Brothers movie as you're going to get in the 90s. Uh, the difference is, is that it also uh, is aware that it's being produced by the Zucker Brothers. Right. Uh, and so the, 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 the combo of them is a little too strong, but all the groundwork is there and you can see how things are set up like a Groucho Marx joke. And arguably, like... I know we were talking a lot about the Kevin Smith connection to um, A Thousand Clowns indirectly because we, again, we don't know if he is a fan of this film. But there is this sense of any story like this about the slacker, uh, the lovable loser. Those films had their basis in the form of portraying perceived bums uh, in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. And then the Gen X crowd or the Sundance kids as I call them uh, picked it up in the 90s and essentially brought them not just to life in a brighter way but they gave them a sense an extra sense of depth that a thousand clowns may not fully possess because the character turns are pretty logical but we didn't think we'd get a resolution out of a Randall character. No. But we've got a buildup that allowed that. Um, you know, I mean, uh, Quentin Tarantino did it, did it kind of beautifully with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood with uh, Rick, the character of Rick Dalton and Cliff Booth. Um, these slacker characters, or, or specifically these loser characters, um, are now considered like Oscar gold, especially in a world that is dearth of anything that's not an IP. Um, and I do think that it's essential to kind of look at how these things began because a thousand clowns clearly had an influence on people to where it would change some things that we see in certain performances. Barry Gordon says that Jeff Goldblum said that this is one of his favorite films. I when believe he met that. <laughs> Jeff Goldblum. 
And that makes a lot of sense. Because Goldblum is Murray. Goldblum Goldblum is Murray. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And that dictates a performance like Ian Malcolm. Yes. Uh, Maybe maybe not Seth Brundle. (laughs) That's uh, stretching a a wee bit. Even if you watch, um, do you you watch his Disney Plus uh, Nat Geo show? I haven't yet. No, it's, it's on it's, my back burner. It's phenomenal, but essentially, it's it's phenomenal because it's just putting his weirdness in like <laughs> in that kind of docu docu series uh, format. So, like you know, watching him interview people, but still do that thing he does on the red carpet where he starts to get close and wants to like touch your face while you're talking. <laughs> like you know, it's like he's doing it by his own rules, essentially, and- just like Murray figures it out. And the quirks that we carry as humans become far more acceptable as time goes on. And that allows the ground to, to open for screenwriters uh, like Diablo Cody. Uh, they allow the groundwork for a Jared and Jerusha Hess to make a Napoleon Dynamite. Um, this actually stems back to a prior conversation we've had about Freaks, um, uh, which is a wonderfully contentious film about who's the real freak yeah and this is that film was a bomb because the movie is the movie (laughs) and it was never going to work when it came out um but the ideas that it possesses and that most horror films possess have found themselves in comedies rather comfortably the where the loser reigns supreme in the best possible way um and the that and and it lends even further credence to the delicate line between comedy and horror because you could see Murray's existence as terrifying, but you can also see it as incredibly admirable, not unlike not 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 unlike living in a daydreamer, like what happens if Tom Sawyer never grows the fuck up? Yeah, you know, like yeah, just yeah. And it's the difference between that and a Huck Finn in a lot of ways. Um and <clears throat> it's clear that the audience of the era received this well enough because this film was able to return an approximate amount of, of, sorry, I had the number here, 2.5 million in rentals on a $1 million budget. Now I didn't find any number related to how much the reshoots actually cost. So who knows if the profit was actually fully turned based on what is reported. Um, it's still considered a success by that measure. Um, and the, the 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 general critic consensus from a modern era has this at seventy one percent. Yes. Um, but one one element that I thought was interesting is uh, is that sometimes the uh, people aren't embracing the spirit of the film. Um, one rook review from film snobbery sums itself up as Robard's performance is loud, playing to the audience brash, and his version of nonconformist behavior is obnoxiously unfunny. Uh, there's one from MSN.com. Was that, that was that written by W. Daniels or um, uh, Phil Hall? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. William uh, Daniels' character. Yeah. Uh, someone named Sean Axemaker on MSN.com writes, there's something disingenuous about presenting defiant pers- 
purposelessness and unemployment as an act of courage. So again, William Daniels wrote this. These yeah, words. yeah, yeah. This yeah. is William Daniels just wrote writes all of IMDb or not Rotten Tomatoes apparently. You know, but um, it, it it is true though because like it like kind of what we were we were talking about like he is wrong like you know like the character the character should not be he's he's kind of an anti-hero in that you shouldn't you shouldn't go along with it you know he is putting the child's well-being you know in in danger by not being able to provide for him you know completely or whatnot um but he's just so goddamn likable. I don't understand how anyone could could come come away feeling any other way, except for like we said, when it gets old, when you've been around it for so long, and and you know when it's directed at you. Yeah. Now we have a now. I want to bring this to the weirdest realm of positivity, because on this show we have a contentious relationship with New York Times critic Bosley Crowther. <laughs> um, who, to say the least, uh, is usually off the mark um, and full of hot air, um, and I hate him. But <laughs> uh, but uh, he liked this movie, and now his reasons are are down the line to it's enjoyable enough. Okay. Um, he has issues amongst everything with. Um, I have to read this last paragraph of the review. Somehow these cinematic splashes of action and atmosphere, which he's referring to the montages, which are bright in and of themselves, seem extraneous and inharmonious with the long and stagey scenes of kooky but constricted conversation that must take place mainly in one room. It is as if, though, the interludes are but filling to suggest the look and the frenzy of New York. And that's when Fred Coe goes, oh, fuck, he found me out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> jumps out the window. Um, um, but they are, they are already well enough suggested in the deliciously erratic dialogue. Also, there's just too much of it. The point is clear after an hour and a half that the uncle, an ex-TV writer, persists in his offbeat slant on life because he wants to raise his nephew to be a human being, a person who enjoys himself, not, as the uncle puts it, a chair. That is fine, a reasonable thesis for light and armless comedy, but it Paul's a bit after too much talk and the long scene with chuckles towards the end, which simply establishes the cheap absurdity of TV comics is a little too much too late. Even so the humor is still surprising and Mr. Robards is still full of spice with his clownish wisecracks and the map of ringling brothers and Barnum and Bailey stamped all over his face. If you didn't see a thousand clowns on Broadway, you should certainly see it on the screen. Now backing up for a minute, I think this is a problem that still persists to this day. Too much dialogue is a criticism you will hear any time a, a writer known for dialogue yeah. gets into this arena. I think Aaron Sorkin takes the prize for most hits to the belt when it comes to this argument. He asks for it, though. Like, <laughs> you, you, get, uh, you know, you catch that guy. I haven't watched the Ricardos yet, but only because I can't, I can't even uh, begin to imagine um, how much uh, uh, of a uh, monologue he is going to give those people. And I'm sure it's, it's, it's ludicrous. But, but he leans into it at times. It, it is unfair, 
But there are times where I'm just like, all right, buddy. Like the newsroom, to me, I know everybody who loves Sorkin loves the newsroom. That was like, like a, our friend Rick. <laughs> like Rick, yes. I, I'm I'm singling out Rick on this one. It was it was so extreme that at times, like, and I and I get I, it drives me nuts when people share it like this, and I'm like, no, not that, no, <laughs> like, no one speaks like that, and also, even if they did, no one would give a shit. Like it works in his universe but it doesn't work in real life um, no I, no it doesn't and 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 in as far as being the ricardos it probably should be sort of discussed on this show at some point when like i allow that format to exist because number one i'm blinded b- blinded by fan servicing because nicole kidman academy award winner nicole kidman says jack benny in a line in the movie uh, and i'm like oh well the movie won me because <laughs> it, it's it's a name being yelled out loud that hasn't been yelled in 30 fucking years um uh, except for deadpool 2 which has a whole bit um but you're right his talky talk dialogue approach is <clears throat> a little too self-aware for its own good in certain respects like the characters know their characters um the only time i've ever felt like it felt real Oddly enough, was the social network yes. uh, because it, yeah. it 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 sounds like children being children fighting in college um, now. But like but Kevin and Quentin get this thrown at them, too. Um, I think Death Proof got a lot of hits to the belt because of the dialogue over talkiness of what should have been to some people's minds a more action-oriented car movie but then you go back and realize it's fucking amazing because of course it was um uh but you know like i think that dialogue when it comes to film and we've talked about it on this show before is not a crutch correct it's it's i think it's how you use it and who is whose voice is in the room and it's why we've talked about Kevin Smith so much is because his dialogue brings characters to life in a way that he would probably get flack the way Fred Coe would get flack for not adhering to a smoother visual style. But we've brought up Clerks 2 enough in here. Let's bring it up again. Um, There is an active decision from the visual scheme to create a momentum where there needs to be and it's possibly because Kevin's grown as a director that you start to see movement and even montage to establish a mood like with the raindrops keep falling on my head at the bumper cars um, or even the 1979 bit um, when everybody's fates are kind of being contemplated before the donkey show. Um, uh, there is uh, an approach to the art of what could be a stage play becoming cinematic Mm-hmm. And it's ultimately in an eye of the beholder. Not everybody's going to be on for, on board with this. And this is not something that they're going to teach you in a film school because conceivably they shouldn't. And yet these things prove to still be successes. A Thousand Clowns was a success. Do you? I will tell you how big a success because this film that's seemingly sporadic and erratic on a visual scale, according to Bosley Crowther, which is the only thing I really disagree with him on is his approach to how he receives the dialogue and the visuals. I mean, he's right. This is an enjoyable film that you should watch if you can't watch on stage. But he's clearly wrong about the way people approach this because this film is nominated for four Oscars uh, at a time when the Oscars had a little bit more, 
I don't want to say clout, but it seems like active decisions were made in the right places. For best picture, best supporting actor, best screenplay, best scoring of music, adaptation, or treatment. This is a weird era where the score could be an adaptation score. We don't have that anymore, so that's why Johnny Greenwood didn't get nominated for There Will Be Blood. Damn it. Um, <laughs> um, but this also got nominated for the Golden Globes. This was nominated uh, as one of the top 10 films of the year by the National Board of Review, eighth place. Um, and this one I found great. It was nominated for Best Edited Feature Film at the American Cinema Editors Awards. Now, the editing in this film is key because it's the only reason this film works. That's right. Because of because of all the disparate parts that have to connect together. This this movie is some of the best editing for a comedy I have ever seen. And it would be easy to point out the flubs, but we've already addressed that those kind of service the story. And it reminds me how powerful comedy can be in the editor's hands. It's one of the reasons why I still enjoy going back to Kevin's films is because he edits them masterfully for what they need to be. Um, uh, arguably, Apatow, in certain regards, lets his stuff breathe, but it also creates the world that he wants me to inhabit, and I accept it, especially in the earlier stuff like 40-Year-Old Virgin and Knocked Up. Um and I think that there's a there's a form of editing for comedy that is harder than any other form of editing, apart from maybe horror, because you are having to tap into the timing of a joke. And that right. feels impossible. <laughs> right. And yet they did it so beautifully. And as far as the influences on this film, we've been talking about this the entire time. But I want to ask you from a from from a summary perspective, Nate. Where do you see this film to this minute? Like, where are you seeing it in the immediate? Like, in terms of its influence? Its influence? I mean, you know, it's 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 hard for me to tell, and, and specifically because I came to it so late and I didn't hear about it, that, like, I, I don't know for a fact that it influenced you know, Truffaut or Godard when, when, you know, like, cause there's, there's parts in here that, that feel like 400 blows to me. There's parts in here that feel like breathless to me, but I don't, I don't, you know, it's so close in time that I don't know that it, it had that kind of influence. You know, I, it, it makes me kind of want to dig up, go, go try to look through the archives of, um, Cahiers de Cinema and see if any of them reviewed it, you know, to see mm -hmm. if Truffaut left his thoughts on it. So I, I'm not, you know, I'm not sure what the actual influence is against, you know, what I perceive as influence. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I get you. Like, it's not an immediate call because this could be perceived as a filler piece from its time. Right. There's not, there's almost nothing to distinguish this film as any different from any other innovative comedy coming out of the era. Exactly. I think that it has an influence on the way we still perceive adaptations of stage work. <clears throat> I think it, it does something that musicals already had the ability to do, which is give me something I'm not going to see on the, on the stage. Give me something that I cannot see 
when paying for a $100 ticket. Musicals have that because all you really have to do in some regard, I know that it's more complicated than this, but is to lift up the camera, move it around, give us a sense of intimacy within the music specifically, uh, and know when to pull in, f- pull out for our our more elaborate numbers. Right, um, a, cr- you a crane see- shot in three dimensions. That's the, yeah. the, that's the or, secret to musicals. Yeah, or Busby Berkeley. Put yes. something above head and create a kaleidoscope. And that's not a denigration. That is artistry. That is absolute artistry. And if you do editing correctly, musicals can look beautiful. I still think Chicago is one of the one of the finest musical film adaptations I've ever seen because it has an energy about it that isn't constricted solely to the stage and uses the stage as an emotional piece rather than uh, something contrived for the plot development. Um, and, but I think Thousand Clowns allows further adaptations by other comedic uh, writers for the stage to flourish and blossom. It's more specific to the 70s and maybe even the 80s, but I really think it's it allows Neil Simon adaptations to feel an energy that may not otherwise feel because I'd argue the Sunshine Boys is far more active and visually spectacular than the odd couple. Yeah, sure. And and that's solely from the fact that even just the way we are kicked into the Sunshine Boys is a sense of loss and confusion amid New York City as Walter Matthau is trying to get to that audition for potato chips. Um, You have, I, I think that there is an adherence to allowing theatrical pieces to blossom on their own right and a thousand clowns isn't the sole innovator, but because of what it had to do out of necessity, it creates for us a gateway to allow ourselves to change it up. Secret Honor by um, I think it's it's Bob Altman. Secret Honor with uh, the late Philip Baker Hall, where he's playing Nixon and it's a one man show and it's all in the one room. It's masterful because you're allowed to just try something different because you yeah. have. You don't have the benefit of the doubt on stage. Uh, and, and that is something that a thousand clowns can take credit for allowing to exist. Um, I think that the biggest influence, though, is the one we've been discussing this entire time, which is it allows the loser to be a loser. Yes. In the best possible sense. It allows for characters like Murray to evolve into Randall, uh, into 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 a character you might find out of Pulp Fiction. Um, he, heck, even Melanie and Jackie Brown, who is very much a loser who has a lovable streak in her un, until obviously the, the actual heist goes down. Right. Um, uh, it allows for, it allows for the denizens, supposed denizens of society to have their voice. Um, like the meek shall inherit the earth. Like, that that kind of thing, but instead it's the jerk so on there at the earth. Um, now, but we're talking about a jerk that has scruples, uh, and Murray is a great shining grandfather for them to have, because for all of his faults, Murray is somebody that I would not mind having raised me into adulthood, and that's kind of a beautiful thing that this movie allows me to have. Um, and on that note, Nate, I'm so happy you brought this here. 
now that I'm aware of your love of French New Wave, we're going to have you back to talk about some I love <laughs> some it. French French New Wave because it's got to happen because it's one of the most influential pieces of cinema that's ever existed, uh, whether they be Godard or Truffaut. Um, but um, really quickly, before we go, remind people where they can find you. Where can they find Yo, That's My John? Where can people seek you out? Certainly. Well, you can find Yo, That's My John on all of your favorite podcast providers. You know, like I like to say, this is a podcast. So you know how to find podcasts. You just want to search <laughs> Yo, That's My John. Or you can visit www.yothatsmyjohn.com and you can find it there. Socials at Yo, That's My John. Uh, Zach, I brought a present for you. And that is, Uh-oh. that Uh-oh. is, yes, sir. That's my baby. No, sir. I don't mean maybe. Yes, sir. That's my baby. Now, which plays so many times throughout that movie. (laughs) Nobody has brought music to the end of the show, and now you've set a bar that everybody else has to fucking stand up to. Come on, I gotta leave a mark. I gotta leave Matt Murbeck. I want you to play a kazoo (laughs) next time you come on to talk about Disney. (laughs) Oh my god, that was remarkable! Thank you so much, Nate. That was a treat. Thank you for having me. We'll have to end the show with a a performance from Nick and Murray because that that would be the only way to go out on it. But this is going to wrap it up for this episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. You can find out more about us on the back half of the show. Coming up on the program, we will be entering into world cinema, but not France. We're going to go back to Japan, talk about Kurosawa and the movie High and Low with our special guest, Rashmi Manan. And additionally, we will be bringing back our very first guest, Mr. Zach Bynes from Talk and Troma, to introduce us to the rather creative and at times aggravating world of Francis the Talking Mule, <laughs> uh, a, a film that launched a series. And when I first heard words out of Francis's mouth, I'm like, none of this holds up today at all. What were those words? You'll have to stay tuned to find out or find Francis the Mule and watch it for yourself. Um, and additionally, Talking Tati, you want more Jock Tati in your life? Guess what? You're going to be getting it because not too long after this episode, you're going to be hearing entry four in our tour to Tati where we talk about Playtime. That's right, the film that broke Tati. And yet, one of his most stunning and superb pieces of art that he ever put to the screen. We're going to be talking about that. Sterling Cook, Henry Jarvis, it's all coming back. Uh, but until all of that, and until next time, folks, good night. This concludes tonight's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Ballyhoo Review and on Instagram at Ballyhoo Review Pod.
Our theme was composed by Matty Ghost. Be sure to check out more of his music on Twitch. Our announcer was Henry Jarvis. Look for him on the Real Nerds podcast. This is Zach, signing off. Stay tuned for Jack Benny, who follows immediately after station identification. Thank you.